indulgent. I wanted to believe that uh, I could eat anything as long as I ate it moderately. And um, that caused me all kinds of relapse because I was losing weight, going on a diet, losing weight, working the steps, feeling great. And then I would take back in measured quantities foods, according to the diet I was on, uh, foods that I really should not have indulged in. That was one of the main causes of my, uh, of my relapse. But the other cause of my relapse was not understanding step 10. And I remember the moment I understood it, I, I had worked the steps, uh, the big book way, I was reading everything, I had uh, uh, lost weight, I had a plan of eating, eliminated all the foods, things were going well. And I was listening to big book studies and uh, just really studying and trying to understand things. And I remember it was sometime after Christmas, in between Christmas and New Year's, and I was traveling. I'd been working hard over Christmas, actually. And I've been traveling. I was traveling uh, up a few hundred miles, uh, 150 miles to a, a place where a whole bunch of families with all the kids the same age as, as mine um, and my wife were. And um, I was listening to a big book study by Blaine, this guy that from my hometown who... Uh, who has had such a huge influence on my approach to big book. And I remember I was dark, I uh, was getting dark. And I remember his saying, step 10 is steps four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine done in the context of recovery. And that suddenly exploded in me. And he then began to prove it by going through the, the big book. And I began to realize that some of my relapses were caused by something completely different. I had read step 10 as it's written on the wall, continued to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. And every time I did something wrong, I would apologize to the person I did something wrong to. I thought that was step 10, just a constant vigilance to make sure that I was, as I was cleaning up what was going on as, as, as the day went on. And uh, what I began to realize was that at least, you know, about a year, a year and a half after I originally joined OA and things were going relatively well for me, uh, there were, after about a year, there were some signs of relapse, but I was still eating okay. I wasn't having that much problems. Some very, very difficult things began to happen in my wife's family. And I loved my wife's family. They were the most marvelous people in the world. Um, I, I think I discussed some of this uh, a little while ago, uh, sometime in, during, in the course of this workshop. But illnesses, deaths, uh, real difficult stuff that caused my wife to spend a lot of time uh, away from home, taking care of her family. It was really hard on her. It was really hard on our kids who loved their grandparents and their aunt. Um, I loved them. Uh, I was resenting the fact that she was taking time away from the family and put more of a load on me. And at the same time, I was feeling guilty that I was resenting it because I, she obviously had to. So a whole bunch of pressures were going on. And then my my kids would spill some milk and I'd yell at them. And then I'd apologize to them because I thought that's what step 10 was about. And when Blaine said that step 10 is steps four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine done in the context of recovery, 
it all began to make sense. What I had not done during those seven years, even during the times of my recovery, what I had not done was to clean up the accumulated past that had gone on since my step nine. Um, I had not sort of dealt with all the resentments, all the things were going on in my life. I was just sort of cherry picking the, the manifestations, the examples of the stress I was going through, but I wasn't dealing with the stressful issues that were going on. And that was another reason for my relapse. I was just, my, my mind was beginning to be fogged with fears and resentments um, and all kinds of other relationship issues that I was not dealing with. Um, so once I realized that, I started a practice of doing step 10s as often as I needed to. So I, what I want to do is go to step 10 in the book. Now, step 10 was not in the original six steps, but that was because the original you know, 100 people approximately who were involved in uh, approving the final version. I mean, Bill wrote most of this, but who were involved in writing the final version were for the most part uh, members of the Oxford groups uh, uh, where, the, where the concept of confession, of uh, moral inventory, confession, uh, prayer, uh, uh, restitution, prayer, and helpfulness to others uh, originated. Um, they continued, they always did inventory. They did inventory of each other. They did prayers for each other. They talked about what their issues were. It was a general practice that they were cleaning up everything all the time. Um, but when Bill started to write the 12 steps uh, to make sure that it was written, the book, big book was, was available for people who did not have anyone available to them. And also there was this whole sense of sort of moving away from the Oxford groups and sort of developing you know, their own practice. Bill wrote the 12 steps and he added step 10. It only is a paragraph. There isn't time spent on it. And one of the reasons is that the instructions for doing step 10 are basically in steps four through nine. There's no need to repeat this. It's just a statement that you have to continue doing it. There is a, an issue among big book thumpers as to how often you do a step 10. And I'll deal with that afterwards, but I just wanna go through the text on page 84 to show why I believe that this says we continue to do steps four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. So it says this thought brings us to step 10, which suggests we continue to take personal inventory, continue to take personal inventory, and continue to set right any new mistakes as we go along, as opposed to promptly admitted it. And I think the whole concept of setting right any new mistakes is broader than promptly admitting it. We vigorously commenced this way of living as we cleaned up the past. And cleaning up the past involved the analysis of what's going on, the, uh, the understanding of what harm we've done, and the amends that we made, which is steps four through nine. We have entered the world of the spirit. I mean, we've been given this promise that we're now part, we, the pipeline is connected, the blockage is gone. Um, the, our deepest values, our God, our creator, our spirit of the universe, truth, love, justice, beauty, whatever, whatever are your most deep, deepest, uh, whatever are your deepest motivating factors, 
are welling up through the pipeline. They're entering into your mind. You're beginning to think and act according to what you deeply believe in, rather than contrary to what you deeply believe in, rather than deviating from, your, from what you deeply believe in. Um, so you've entered this world. Our next function is to grow an understanding and effect of this is not an overnight matter. It should continue for our lifetime. Continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. I accept that they leave out self-seeking or inconsiderate, and they add resentment. It's true, they do. But aside from that, this is close to what step four is. When these crop up, we ask God at once to remove them, six and seven. We discuss them with someone immediately, five, and make amends quickly if we have harmed anyone, eight and nine. And, and, and then we resolutely turn our thoughts to someone we can help, 12, love and tolerance of others is our code. So I, I have been convinced, and I, I think every big book thumper is convinced that step 10 is something you do that is the equivalent of steps four through nine, how you did steps four through nine. And I have decided, uh, it, well, I've decided, my own interpretation, I, I have sort of, I have both an English philosophy on the one side and a legal uh, side of textual analysis. You know, I've, I've learned textual analysis in sort of three different fields. But one of the concepts is that if something is discussed twice, then the differences between the two should be emphasized. And step 10 and step 11 have a similar discussion between the step 11 evening meditation and the step 10 uh, inventory. And uh, I take from that, that step 11 is a different kind of inventory from the step 10 inventory, because otherwise, why would it be discussed twice? That's sort of my interpretation. Some people absolutely disagree with me, and they think that step 10 uh, and the step 11 evening meditation are the same. But I'll give you my reasons in a, in a moment. When I get to step 11, I'll point out the differences and point out why I think uh, and how often or why I think the step 11 meditation is really uh, quite different from the uh, step 10 uh, inventory. At any rate, whether you do it, and, and, and some people uh, take from uh, AA's, uh, the AA 12 and 12, there's a discussion in there, uh, Bill's essays on, on, on the steps and the AA 12 and 12, Bill discusses three different kinds of inventories in under step 10. One of them is what he calls the spot check, which is you do it frequently during the day. Uh, the other is the uh, an evening meditation. And the third is, um, I forgot what he calls it, but it's sort of an annual meditation. It's a sort of, you do a big one every so often. I believe that, uh, that that is a misinterpretation of the big book. Well, it, it's not intended to be an interpretation of the big book, but, but that is a conflation of the daily meditations in step 11 and the step 10 uh, inventory. At any rate, I'll just tell you what I do. And then I'll tell you how often I do it. And then I'll go to step 11 and we'll, and we'll start discussing why I see the difference. Okay, so we'll see how it works, see whether you agree with me. But it doesn't really matter. I mean, if you're able to do 
the equivalent of a step 10 every night. Terrific. Blaine says he, he said he did that. I don't know how he could, but he said he did it. But to me, there's a difference between a daily and a, and a general, a daily med, uh, inventory and a, and a general inventory. I use this in the same way I did step 10 with a few sort of variations because I am now a professional and not an amateur. You know, they say this should only be done by professionals. Don't do this at home. Well, I'm in the spiritual world now. So I have the right to deal with this in a creative way, whereas I would never advise a sponsee to do steps four through nine in any creative way. I would just say, just do it, get it done, get into the world of the spirit. Then you can do all kinds of things that are more subtle and more and more complex and sophisticated. So I, but, but generally speaking, I mean, I do exactly what I did in steps four through nine. Whatever I need to, and I'll talk about how often that is, I write down resentments all the things that are going on in my life. And sometimes they're what's going on in the rest of the world. Um, you know, the, the um, uh, events of, of, of the, of the, in the world that bother me, uh, people who bother me, politicians who bother me, uh, things that are going on with uh, suffering in the rest of the world. Sometimes it's me. Sometimes, you know, I mean, we haven't seen our, uh, well, she's now four years old. We missed a whole year of our granddaughter who lives 1,500 miles away from us in, in, uh, in Canada. And, and we, we can't see her because of, 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 of the pandemic. And, you know, this is not a good age for Zoom, you know, three to four years old. It's just, you know, we can watch her play and occasionally we can read to her. But, you know, there's no bonding. It's not, you know, and she's missing it. So I can write that down. I'll write her name down on a... On a um, as a resentment and our daughter who lives far away, whom we also haven't seen for that long and, and, and our son-in-law. Um, you know, where I've, I've written all kinds of things down. I have also written down career decisions. Twice, I think in the last 28 years. Yeah, I have had to make, well, three times. I've had to make major decisions I haven't had to, but I've chosen to make major decisions about whether to change my course of career and what I am going to do with my life, including, uh, well, I mean, retirement's another one. Um, so all these different issues have been resentments with me. Um, my dissatisfaction in the work I was doing, my looking for another kind of career. These are all things I've put down as resentments. Uh, because they're living in my mind. If I'm not happy with my work, then that is a resentment. Um, I've put down foods down. Should I eat this or not? Is this a particular food that I should be getting rid of? That's a resentment if it bothers me. You know, plus the normal stuff. My wife occasionally, you know, my grown-up daughters, uh, you know, my father uh, was... Uh, uh, died uh, three years ago at the age of 101, a remarkable man, but taking care of him and watching him. Uh, and his mind was great, but his body was gradually deteriorating. And, you know, taking care of sort of dealing with the issue of, you know, I'd love my old vigorous father back. And, uh, you know, he was, he was living with someone who was just wonderful uh, for him uh, and, and, you know, a wonderful woman. 
but she wasn't my mother and I wanted my mother back. And she, she passed away in 1997, you know? So every so often I would see him with a, a wonderful woman who loved her very much. He left her um, and I would just have these pangs of my mother. So I'd write that down. You know, uh, do we sell our house and move into a condo? That might've gone down. You know, so anything that was on my mind, I would write down as a resentment and process it through the resentment form. Why is this on my mind? Column two, how does it affect me? Uh, or what does it affect my self-esteem, my uh, security, my pocketbook, uh, my ambitions, my uh, personal relations, my sexual relations, and is any fear involved? And often it, it wouldn't be that, you know, often not a lot of those would be ticked off, but some of them would be checked off. Uh, fear would be a big one. Ambitions would be a big one. Um, and then I would, if there were any people on that, uh, on my listing who were harming me or others, I would do the resentment prayers, either this is a sick person, um, God grant me the same tolerance, pity, patience, I would cheerfully grant a sick person, a sick friend, or if it was really tough, and there have been times when it has been really tough, I have written down, I have uh, said to page 552, I, uh, I pray that so-and-so have the same, uh, uh, have everything I want out of life. Um, and then I would figure out where have I been self-willed, dishonest, self-seeking, frightened. And when I got to that point, I mean, I got, you know, as 28 years have passed, let me tell you, as soon as I put the resentment down, I already know where I'm going because my patterns are always the same. You know, I, I you know, things crop up, they bother me and my selfish, dishonest, self-seeking and frightened, I go back to the same patterns. I mean, I, 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 I am a human being. And so very often I write the resentment on, oh, this is on my list. Okay, I know where I'm going with this one. Um, and then I deal with the, you know, but what I'm doing, for instance, in a career decision, once I figure out the parts of me, the, my defects of character in relation to my career issues, and I deal with those, I then have a clear mind as to what it is I'm looking for in whether or not I should change my career. You know, I'll just give you an example uh, in the career decision issue. I was unhappy with the work I was doing. And I wrote down, ah, you know, it's not 100% fulfilling. Uh, sometimes I, uh, uh, I'm acting as a lawyer for people I don't always uh, agree with. Um, I'm not happy in the office. I'm, I'm, right, I'm just, I don't remember what I wrote down. Um, I think I could be doing something better. I don't know exactly what it is, uh, you know, and then when I got to self-willed, dishonest, self-seeking and frightened, self-willed, I want my work to be 100% fulfilling. I want my work to provide me flexibility so I can do my OA work and have friends and have a regular social life uh, and read and pursue all my other interests. Um, I want, uh, you know, this, I want to I want to be, uh, use all my skills I want this and this and this and this. And then under dishonest, no job is 100% fulfilling. You don't do any harm and you frequently can do some good with your work. Um, 
it gives you the flexibility that you need because you're self, I'm, I'm self-employed. I could take off five days if I wanted to, to do an OA uh, service work. Um, it pays well enough that you can easily support the family. My wife had retired usually by this time. Um, and, uh, and it's not overtaxing. It's not, you know, uh, and then I sort of, and which was the uh, self-seeking, uh, you want to be perfect. You want you want everything you do to be absolutely incredible. Uh, you don't deserve any more than anyone else does. Uh, and uh, frightened that I'll never be happy in my job. You know, then I go to the fear form. Uh, what would my higher power have me be? Well, after realizing that my career, what I was doing as a lawyer was pretty darn good. You know, that it, you know, I would suddenly have this feeling, life isn't bad. You know, my job is a lot better than I thought it was. Why am I focusing all, only on the bad things when in fact it's giving me a good career, a, a good choices? What, what my fear, what my higher power have me, the person who accepts the reality that his job is a good job and, and devotes himself to it, you know, as much as required. And so I, I bounce back and be happy with my jobs. And then at a certain point, I, I got some opportunities to do other kinds of work, mediation work, helping people work together rather than as a lawyer trying to win on behalf of a client one side or the other. And I, I really enjoyed this work. It was really tough and emotional work, but it really gave me a sense of accomplishment. And so I put down as a resentment, should I become a mediator? And that, that would have meant getting rid of my entire legal career, charting off in a completely different direction. So I went, you know, my fears, am I giving up my financial security? Uh, uh, you know, will I get any work? Uh, you know, and I, as I worked through the step uh, four, or five, uh, four and five, you know, I would talk to uh, uh, someone in OA for guidance as to whether I'm looking at the right things and whether I'm not, as a step five, whether I'm um, uh, looking only for myself or what I'm truly looking for, the, what is best. Very influenced by the AA 12 and 12, which talks about a job as being a means of being useful. And, uh, and, and, and that was very important for me to be, to be useful. Um, over a period of time, I did about five step tens on the issue of my career decision. My, one of my last step fives, I did three times. I did it once with one of my mentors in OA to make sure that I was looking at it from as spiritual an angle as I could. I did it once with my wife to make sure that she would be on board with me if I did make this career change because it was a financial risk. Um, and, and certainly if, if the whole business uh, flopped, we'd have to sell our house and, uh, uh, you know, and, and move into very different accommodations. Um, and I also discussed it with a friend of mine who's a clinical psychologist and a career counselor to see whether or not I was thinking of the right things and doing the right things. And, and so I went through this process of step fours. I got the training. I realized I needed training before I even thought about changing my careers. I needed to have a certification. So I got the certification. I needed to have a business plan. I developed a business plan, not a as it turned out, not the best, uh, the best business plan, but I did my best. And then I made the decision to leave. 
And then one of my partners asked me to say, I, I, I gave a year's notice uh, because I, you know, I was a senior partner in this very small boutique law firm. And one of my partners asked me to stay on for a year and a half longer in order to, uh, to sort of set him and some other lawyers to come in. Uh, I don't want to tell my whole life story. I only want to say that every time I had decisions to make, I used step 10 to make them. And that meant that whether my decision turned out to work or not, I was content with it because I felt that I was making it from a spiritual basis. Because I had, I had got rid of the defects of character that were nagging at me and defogging my mind so that I made a decision based on the best spiritual practice I could. As it turned out, I got some work and didn't get a lot of work. I had to do a lot of step tens on why am I not getting work? People told me I'd get work, but I'm not. Maybe they were just fooling me and maybe I'm not any good. And, uh, you know, all these crises of co uh, conscience, I would do work on that. And, um, uh, and then I ended up getting a completely different kind of uh, job. Uh, which I told you about, uh, interviewing people uh, and adjudicating on, on claims of uh, sexual physical abuse. And that turned out to be the most fulfilling work I've ever done in my life. Exhausting, create, left me vulnerable to pain in, in a way that I didn't know I could be, um, but not post-trauma, secondary trauma. My clinical psychologist friend told me that, but I don't fit that. But vulnerable, tremendously vulnerable, but doing what I thought was at least as much good as I could to help people uh, in some small way heal, some small way. Um, so step 10 for me has been everything that, it, that keeps me spiritual. Uh, when my sponsees relapse, and some of my sponsees do, it is usually because they have not heeded my advice to do step tens as often as they can. That life goes on. You do a step nine, you feel great, you're in a spiritual world and life keeps going on. And there's a past that has to be cleaned up. The past may be one day old, it may be a week old, it may be a year old, but there is that past and things happen. And we don't always notice that they're happening. We've been living in the pandemic uh, age for what, 14, 15 months now. Um, it's become sort of the equivalent of the factory noise. If you work in a noisy factory, you don't notice it while you're working in the factory. You know, you, in the United States, you've been going through tremendous political turmoil. Whatever side of the spectrum you want to, you, you think you're on, the turmoil that you're going through and the, dis, and the, uh, the disagreements that occur among uh, friends, let alone enemies, let alone just people you meet in the street, uh, is incredible. And you don't always notice that you're involved in these things. So these are all things that would go on to a step 10. How often do I do a step 10? I've created a list of 12 uh, uh, ways. Just a coincidence. I'm sure just a coincidence. But the first comes, and, and, and I'll, I'll just show it to you, from the doctor's opinion. And the first three. And the doctor says on page XX, 
the III, 28 in Roman numerals in the fourth edition, and XXVI in the third and second edition, 26. Right at the bottom of that page, it says, they are restless, irritable, and discontented. Those are my first three indicators. I don't often notice when I'm restless or irritable or discontented, but if I really do notice that, it's probably time for me to do a step 10. There are things in my mind that are going on that if I don't deal with them, just as the doctor says, if I'm restless, irritable, discontented, it's hard to live in sobriety. So that's the first three. The next come from page 52 of the big book, um, which are the bedevilments. Uh, we were having trouble uh, with trouble with personal relationships. We couldn't control our emotional natures. We were prey to misery and depression. We couldn't make a living. We had a feeling of uselessness. We were full of fear. We were unhappy. We couldn't seem to be of real help to other people. That's eight of them. If these are going on in my life, boy, is it time to do a step 10. And that, so that's eight and three is 11. And the 12th one is, is there any indication that I'm not being vigilant about my food or that food is beginning to tempt me? Because then it's really time for a step 10. And I weigh myself once a month. I do not weigh and measure my food. Uh, I use other means of dealing with my volume issues, my volume eating behaviors. That means that I can fluctuate. And if I see a trend of fluctuation upwards, it's probably time, it is time for me to do a step 10 and to tighten up what I'm doing respecting volume. Because uh, I don't want it to be a mechanical action. I want it to be as a result of really examining what's going on in my life. Um, once in my life in the last 28 years that I can remember only once, have I been tempted to eat something I knew I shouldn't eat? And boy, was it time for me to do a step 10 then. I, I mean, I, I got so scared when I realized I was in a restaurant with uh, my father, uh, my, our daughter, uh, one of our daughters and, and my wife. And, they, and the other three had ordered in this restaurant, uh, sweet potato fries. I happen to like sweet potatoes very much, but these were fried, deep fried. I don't eat deep fried food. And none of them ate those fries, which is a pretty good indication they probably didn't taste very good. They ate everything else, but they weren't eating. And there were these sweet potato fries on all three of their plates. And I remember saying to myself, that looks pretty good. Uh, I like sweet potatoes. They're probably not that deeply fried. And suddenly, uh, there's just this explosion. What the hell is happening to me? It's time to do a step 10. That's the only time it's, it's happened to me. I have not been tempted like that uh, very often. Well, that's the only time I can remember, step 10. So those are the 12 in, indicia, the 12 criteria. I do have a 13th one. It, it rarely has happened, uh, but it happened earlier on in my, in my spiritual life. If one of my sponsees says, you know, Laurie, I think you should do a step 10. Boy, is it time for me to do a step 10 if I'm getting... You know, so bad that my sponsees see it. Uh, or if my wife tells me to do a step 10, I'll do a step 10. Uh, because these are indications, again, that it, it is time, uh, that something's going on in my life, that I'm, I'm getting a little bit 
more emotional, a little bit grumpier, a little bit worse, a little bit less spiritual than I should be. So I do step tens whenever these things come to me and I realize it's time to do one. And that has kept me clean. I believe that that's been the main thing that's kept me clean uh, uh, over the last 28 years. Make, being, being open to the idea that I've got to do a complete assessment of what's going on in my life. So my sponsees know that, uh, that it, if they ever phone me with a problem, my answer would be, that's what step 10 is all about. I don't have the answers. And I make myself available as a sponsor to my sponsees after they recover, after they finish step nine, my available to, availability to them is quite limited because I will say to them, both of us have to worry about those who still suffer, not those who don't suffer. So my spending time with you takes time away from both you and me um, in terms of spending time uh, that, you could, that we could both be spending helping those who still suffer. But I am available to you if you want to do step 10. I'm available to you to hear your step five, all of the feedback that I might be able to provide in the step five part of the process. I'm also available because the fact is most amends at this point are going to be living amends. You know, you, you, once you're into the spiritual life, there's no direct apologies or restitution that you'll probably have to make. You'll be living an honest and loving life, but occasionally you'll be having real problems with what's going on in your entire life. Um, so I'm available. So the living amends or the complex amends are going to be, you know, it's really good working them out in steps eight and nine. So I say I'm available to you if you need any uh, suggestions about what kind of harm you may have done to someone, what, what amends might be appropriate, and or whether you should make those amends. And, and so step 10 to me has been the answer and is the answer to most relapses after you've reached step nine, you're in the spiritual world, why do you relapse? The chances are that it's either 10, 11, or 12, and it's usually 10 or 12 and not 11, although it could be 11 as well. So that for me is step 10. I'm happy to answer any questions, but that's what I do. I, I've done... Um, as I said, I, I can be creative with it. I once many years ago, my wife was on the list and I wrote down 20 things in the column two about what was bothering me, why she was on the list. And I thought to myself, I, I think I can do deeper than that. I took each one of those 20 things and I put it into column one as 20 resentments about my wife, rather than my wife in column one, I put down the 20 things that were originally in column two, I put them into column one. And then for each one of them, I figured out, oh, why does that one bother me? So I was, uh, you know, in the business world, they say I drilled down deeper. That was really powerful. Um, and the other thing I did, I once did a step five with my wife in which she was on the list. But I was at the point where I was able to talk only about my defects of character had nothing to do with her. It was in my relationship with her, where was I at fault? And it was a very loving and wonderful time. Now, my wife, I think is a pretty remarkable person. I'm not sure I suggested anyone else do it uh, with, that, with their spouses, but uh, with us, it was truly a, a wonderful experience. 
I've sometimes done my step five when we went to face-to-face meetings, uh, I would go to face-to-face meeting. I wait until the last recovered person was ready to leave. I'd say, can you give me 10 minutes to do a step five part of a step 10 with me? Now, my step fives were pretty mechanical. Mechanical is the wrong word, but they were pretty fast because I was able, you know, uh, this has happened again and this has happened again, you know, and, and I really knew where I was going. And by now, when I write down my resentments, I already know where I'm going in my amends because I've been doing this for 27 years. Um, but it isn't in my mind. I literally write things out. I don't use the forms anymore. I just use you know pieces of paper like this to do it. Um, but I do it. And I just recently did one about uh, two months ago, month, a month ago, month ago. And it was very helpful. So that's step 10. And um, then let me uh, go now to step 11. So the, the, the big book talks about step 10. And I believe it says that we continue to do steps four through nine. But we're recovered now. So it's a different approach. But we still have to deal with all the things that are bothering us. And then we've got uh, over here. You know, all these wonderful promises. The reasons we joined this program is to feel neutral. All the promises in pages 84 and 85. We're neither cocky nor are we afraid. That, that is our experience. That is how we react so long as we keep in fit spiritual condition. So how do we keep in fit spiritual condition? Step 10 is one of them. The next is going to be step 11. They say it's easy to let up on the spiritual program of action or rest in our laurels. We're headed for trouble if we do, for alcohol is a, a subtle foe. We are not cured of alcoholism. And this is really important. We can never be cured because we'll always have this physical uh, craving issue. Um, and, you know, if you don't like saying recovered, you could say recovered but not cured. Um, because as a good friend of mine does. What we really have is a daily reprieve and I believe that a reprieve is a suspension of a death sentence. So it's a daily reprieve. So a suspension of our death sentence day by day, contingent, absolutely requiring the maintenance of our spiritual condition. Every day is a day when we must carry the vision of God's will into all of our activities. How can I best serve thee? Thy will not mine be done. These are thoughts which must go with us constantly. We can exercise our willpower along this line all we wish. It is the proper use of the will. And this is really important because you notice we've given up our will in our life. We've made a decision to turn our will in our life over to the care of God as we understood him. Well, what's happening now? We get our will back, right? We can exercise our willpower along this line all we wish. It is the proper use of the will. We get our will back because our will is now our higher power's will. It is now living according to what we deeply believe in. And this is, this is key to the whole, the whole concept. The pipeline is open. So we, have our, we exercise our willpower to do what our higher power would have us be. So for me, that means living according to truth, love, justice, and beauty. They go on. Much has already been said about receiving strength, inspiration, and direction from him who has all knowledge and power. Uh, not easy words for this agnostical atheist to listen to, but I, I listen to it. I don't care anymore. 
if we've carefully followed directions, we've begun to sense the flow of the spirit into us. To some extent, we've become God conscious. We've begun to develop this vital sixth sense. And this sixth sense, I believe, is going to be described in a couple of pages as being able to act on intuition, being able to rely on the open pipeline between our deepest values in our hearts and how we think and act so that we aren't going to have to think through every little thing, analyze every little thing. We can sort of say, I wonder what I should do. My mind tells me I should do this. I'll do this. And feel that that is the right decision or it is a right decision because we're making it without being self-willed, honestly, without any ego gratification whatsoever, and without any fear. And if we can make decisions without those character defects, then we can rely on them to be at least one of the right decisions that we could make. There may be other right decisions, but at least this is one of them. And we don't regret having made that decision because we did it with the best of intentions and without our character defects being involved. And if something happens, we go with it. So they say much has already been uh, uh, this vital success. We must go further. That means more action, right? There's more action. There's always action, action, action. Go, 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 go. The big book is always about just keep going. Step 11 suggests prayer and meditation. We shouldn't be shy in this matter of prayer. Better men than we are using it constantly. Page 86. It works if we have the proper attitude and work at it. It would be easy to be vague about this matter, yet we believe we can make some definite and valuable suggestions. Now, step 11, prayer and meditation. Please understand what I'm about to say. Meditation these days has the image, and it's a wonderful image, of quietness, dark rooms, candles, meditation, opening your mind. You know, the Eastern practices, the, and also mindfulness, which has a Western aspect to it, but still has an Eastern as the whole of emptying the mind and opening it up. Uh, there are Western aspects. I mean, certainly within many religions, there's a there's a meditative uh, there are meditative moments all the way through many uh, religious activities, both in the West and the East. This moment of opening up to God, no question, that's a good thing to do. And many of my mentors in this fellowship are people who practice that kind of meditation uh, for many minutes, if not hours a day. You know, I have one friend who suffers from tremendous pain, uh, who to deal with that pain and still be useful, meditates, I think for about an hour and a half every morning to deal with how he's gonna live through the pain today. And he has to do that. If he, did, if he didn't do that, he would not be serene enough to do all the things that he does in a way. That's not what the big book is suggesting, although it's a wonderful thing to do. And, and it's a wonderful thing. If, that is, it's more than what the big book is suggesting. It's not, it's not that the big book isn't suggesting that, it's more, it's an addition to what the big book is suggesting. But the big book provides a minimum for what we should be doing. And that is set out in these pages. And these, these are very different from the kind of meditation, meditative practices that we know about today and that we think about. 
And so in addition to all kinds of great meditative practices, which people do, the bottom line that the big book provides is extremely practical and is not as related to this notion of quiet mindfulness. There are three kinds of prayers and meditations, three times. One is retiring at night. The other is getting up in the morning. And the third is during the day. So it covers the, the waterfront as it were. And uh, I just wanted to point out, and I'm just going to share uh, another part of my screen. Another part of, yeah, so let me just share this. Blaine, that wonderful man has put together somewhere. Where the heck is it? I have it. It's right here. Oh, here it is. Okay. Uh, he's put together, and this is available on that website that I, I told you about. He's put together on one page everything you do according to the big book. So I'm not going to go through this. I'm just going to point out that that's what it is. Everything that's in the big book about when you, what you should meditate, pray and meditate about and what you should do and what you should say is put together. And you'll notice, for instance, that, that he has, uh, well, yeah, I, I got to change this. I asked for someone's health, prosperity, and happiness. I would change it. I, I don't know. Hmm. Well, I don't like to change anything the plane did. Um, but he, he point out in the daily meditations, page 85, page 67, uh, he suggests, and things of that sort. It's a wonderful document, and I, I really recommend it, that it's a, it's, a, it's a simple cheat sheet, as it were, for you to do evening prayers, morning prayers, daily prayers. So I'm going to stop sharing that just to point out you can get that on the website, oabigbook.info. It's the step 11 prayer and meditation form. You can download with his permission, I use it. Um, and now I'm gonna go back to the big book. So here, here are the instructions that they provide. Well, let me give you the overview. The overview in my interpretation is that in, in the evening or when, if you have the day shift or the night shift in the morning, whenever you go to bed, you review the day that has just passed. And you review it with the purpose of doing better the next day. So you, you think about what's gone on during the day. How did I do? You use the same criteria that you would use in a step four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine, but you don't write them down. You're just doing it in your mind. You're just reviewing the day. And then in the morning, you get up and you plan your day as much as you can. And there are prayers to be said. If you don't know what's going to happen, there are prayers to be said uh, for, uh, if you don't know what happened, what should you do? And then there are things you can say during the day if you get upset or if things are bothering you, mantras that you can say. And that's step 11. Now, doing more than that is wonderful. I have not found myself able to do more than that. I, I have tried and I've, I've, I've done it. I have I don't know what it is about my mind, but I, I cannot do it. I, I just have 
I, I'm sure someone says, yes, you can, if you want to devote yourself to it. That may be true, but I just, I've, I've found it to be very practical to do this and no more and to spend other time in doing step 12 work rather than doing uh, step 11 work. But I have friends who swear by this and I don't want to dissuade anyone from doing major meditative practice. It is a wonderful, wonderful thing to do. It's not for me, but please don't take me as any kind of a guru or anyone to follow. You know, I practice a good enough program and uh, I would rather devote myself to step 12. But here are the very practical minimum instructions of the big book. When, so page 86, when we retire at night, we constructively review our data. In other words, we're reviewing the data just passed in a constructive way so that we're not tearing down what we did. We're trying to build on it and figure out what did we do well and what didn't we do well, what we improve upon the next day. Were we resentful, selfish, dishonest, or afraid? Same words as in step 10, right? Um, where is step 10? Here's step 10. Uh, we watched for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear on page 84. But were we resentful today, selfish, dishonest, uh, uh, or afraid? Not are we now resentful, selfish, dishonest, or afraid about everything that's going on today? Were we resentful, selfish, dishonest, or afraid? Do we owe an apology? Not amends, doesn't say setting right any of your mistakes. Is there an apology we have to make for anything we did today? And so I would say the difference for me there is I owed an apology to my kids for yelling at them for spilling the milk, but I also had to do a step 10 to deal with why I was yelling at them, which had nothing to do with them. That's how I would see it. Were we kind and loving? Uh, have we kept something? To, so that's the own apology. That's the equivalent of step eight and nine. Have we kept something to ourselves which should be discussed with another person at once? That would be step five, but the answer could be no. There's nothing I have to discuss with anyone else. Whereas in step 10, I always have to discuss it because if I have resentments and fears, I have to do a step five part of that. So that's why I see it's different. Then they ask many more questions. Were we kind and loving toward all? What could we have done better? Were we thinking of ourselves most of the time? Or were we thinking of what we could do for others and what we could pack into the stream of life? But we must be careful not to drift into worry, remorse, or morbid reflection, for that would diminish our usefulness to others. So that's what we think about. After making our review, we ask God's forgiveness, inquire what corrective measures should be taken. So that would be steps six and seven and part of step eight and nine. So you can see the similarity. And you can certainly see why some people believe that we do the, we write down our step four and we phone another person or talk to another person in step five and we say the step seven prayer and then we figure out what amendments we make every day. You can see how people can uh, say, well, that's really the same as step 10. Because they, they do it twice, my inclination and my, my practice is to see it as being different. So at night, I review my day in my mind. I'm in bed. I'm thinking, how did I do today? Did I do anything wrong? Is there anyone I owe an apology to? Uh, how did I do? Did I give myself as much as I can to my higher values? Um, but I do a step 10 whenever I need to. My best example is, um, is uh, a time when my mother was quite ill. She, uh, took, she had a stroke. 
she was confined to a wheelchair. And this normally just outgoing, talkative woman whom everyone just loved and interested in other people and, and uh, vibrant, could not speak more than three or four words at a time because of her stroke. And it became pretty sad and pretty embittered. It was very hard for her to accept love. She was used to giving it, but she didn't want people to do things for her. She was always used to doing things for people. And here was my father taking care of her, where she had always sort of, of her necessities, feeding her and taking her to the bathroom and stuff like that. Whereas she had, she had always fed my father. She would always sort of make things right so my father could do the work outside the home. That was the role that she had played. And here he was doing those things for her and she couldn't stand it. Um, and, and so that went on for three or four years until she passed away. And every day I would do a step 11. Did I see them? Did I show them love? Did I speak to them if I couldn't see them? How was my attitude towards them? Did I do what I could to make them happy? But every week I would do a step 10. I write down my mother, my father, their relationship and anything else that might've been bothering me. And I discovered in my step 10s, things that I could not possibly have discovered in my step 11s. Uh, you know, I, I would discover things like, uh, I want my mother back. You know, I don't think I would have discovered that in reviewing the day, but I wanted my mother back. I wanted my own mother back. I missed her. Um, I still miss her. Um, but I also discovered things like, I'm afraid my father will die before my mother because he's exerting himself so much, you know, and I'm afraid that I'm going to have to change her diaper, you know, and, and things that I would never have thought of. And I was embarrassed to think of, but I discovered using the step 10. So for me, there's a difference and there's a practical difference between the step 11 evening meditation where I reviewed my day. Did I do as well as I could today? And step 10, which is what's going on in my entire life. That's me. Wonderful big book thumpers, both Blaine and, and Harlan and Ruth and all kinds of other people who are a vision for you will say different. Okay. So I'm just telling you, it can't hurt to try to do this every day. But at a certain uh, point, you might find that it is worthwhile for you to do a wholesale step four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine, regardless of what your daily practice is. Enough said about that. Now let's go to the morning on awakening. Let us think about the 24 hours ahead. We consider our plans for the day. Before we begin, so we're, we're planning our day. Before we begin, here's the prayer. God, please direct my thinking. I especially ask that be divorced from self-pity, dishonest, or self-seeking motives. So I'm asking for my, my motivation to be good, and I'm planning my day in accordance with what I'm going to do today. So we're employing our mental faculties with assurance, for God gave us brains to use. What if I don't know what's going to happen today? And this used to happen to me when I had my litigation practice. Um, you know, I would be involved in, am I going to cross-examine someone or I'm going to present someone, you know, I'm going to make an argument. What should I do? How should I do it? And let me tell you, before I started really using the, this, this approach, I would stay up half the night figuring out what I was going to do in my cross-examination. And of course, 
my cross-examination was hampered by the fact that I'd stayed up half the night. Um, as I began to be more, and I was actually, what's the best, the, the question I must ask first in cross-examination? And as I began to relax, and, and this big book says, and think about our day, we may face indecision. We may not be able to determine which course today to take. Here, we ask God for inspiration and intuitive thought or a decision. We relax and take it easy. As soon as I began to do that, knowing that I would do it in the morning, I would go to sleep at night after having done whatever preparation I had to do in terms of knowing the case. I would get up in the morning, I'd say, God, you know, I, I please direct my thinking. I ask to be divorced from self-pity, dishonest, or self-seeking motive. In terms of the cross-examination I'm about to do, I ask you for inspiration and intuitive thought or a decision. You know what? I was a much better cross-examiner. I came to the conclusion there isn't only one right question. There are many right questions that you can ask. And if the right question is the first one, I can ask it the second or the third time. I was just relaxed. It was just easier um, because I could rely on my mind to, to do the thinking. It was the subconscious thinking. We don't struggle. We're often surprised how the right answer comes after we've tried this for a while. Bottom page 86, top of page 87. What used to be the hunch or the occasional inspiration gradually becomes a working part of the mind. There's a promise that is incredible that you can start to rely as time goes on, you can start to rely on your gut because your gut is aligned with your deepest values. And therefore, and because the blockage is gone between your deepest values and your head, your heart and your head, because the blockage is gone and the pipeline is flowing, you are living and acting and thinking according to what you deeply believe in. And how can that be bad? Now, they, they warn you at the beginning, being still inexperienced, having just made conscious contact with God, we're not always going to be inspired. We might, make, we might do some silly things. Nevertheless, we find that our thinking as time passes will be more and more on the plane of inspiration we come to rely upon. This has been true for me for the last 25 years. Doesn't mean I always make the right decision, but it means I don't regret having made the decision because I'm making it with the best of intentions with my deepest values in mind. And therefore I will go with the flow and I become flexible and uh, I can handle any difficult things. Now, I mean, I'm not perfect at this. Sometimes I do explode. I say, oh, I gotta, I gotta relax a bit. Of course I have that happen to me. But generally speaking, I live much more of a worry-free life. And these promises have become, generally speaking, true for me. I strive for spiritual progress, not perfection. I am no one you should take as, as, a, as an indicator of greatness or serenity or anything like that. I practice a good enough program, but this has allowed me to have some confidence that my gut is, is in pretty good shape in that respect. Oh literally and figuratively. Um, and then they say, we conclude the period of meditation with a prayer that we be shown all through the day what our next step is to be. God, I ask that I be shown all through the day what my next step is to be. I ask that I be given whatever I need to take care of such problems. 
I ask especially for freedom from self-will. Right? So that, that's the prayer right there. Let me show it. Right there on page 87. I make no requests for my ourselves. We may ask for ourselves, however, if others will be helped. So in the cases I, I was doing, I would not ask to win. I would not ask that my client think I'm a great lawyer. I would ask that justice be done and that I be a conduit, a messenger of truth, love, justice, and beauty. And for today, I have the right to ask that I be a proper messenger of the big book. I, but I don't have the right to ask that I be uh, idolized. Well, God knows I don't want to be idolized, but uh, that, 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 that I be idolized or, or that I, I really impress people. I'd be a proper conduit of the big book. We're careful never to pray for our own selfish ends. Many of us have wasted a lot of time doing that. It doesn't work. If circumstances warrant, we ask our wiser friends to join us in morning meditation. My wife and I have done some meditation together, but not a lot. If we belong to a religious denomination, which requires a definite morning devotion, we attend to that also. Well, I don't. If members of religious bodies, we sometimes select to memorize a few set prayers, which emphasize the principles we've been discussing. I, I, have, I have said in the past that I've gone carefully through the... Uh, the liturgy of the uh, of the the, uh, the day the daily prayer liturgy of, of uh, Orthodox uh, Judaism and haven't found any prayer that I really really like, but I recently found that one of the prayers that was almost right for me had a, parts of it that I didn't like. That the original I liked very much. That that the parts that made it in have been modernized and were not as good. The modernization was as good. The original version was good. I've taken to saying a prayer in Hebrew uh, every night. And it really is a wonderful prayer. I'm very happy with it. And I have a, a friend, uh, an OA friend who has, has a, is a rabbinical uh, student who is looking through the rest of the prayer book. Maybe there's some other stuff I can find. It makes me feel good to be able to read. Uh, although I, I don't speak Hebrew, uh, I do read it. And, uh, uh, and it's very nice to have sort of to be part of the ancient kind of uh, prayers, but it has to be something I, I, I like it. Mostly, most of the prayers uh, are, are prayers of praise to God, which mean nothing to me. Um, there are many helpful books, suggestions about these may be obtained from one's priest, minister, rabbi, I'd be quick to see what religious people are right. I mean, I will often say the step three prayer, the step seven prayer, you know, these are wonderful prayers as well. I've often said the St. Francis prayer, which I like, although it turns out St. Francis didn't write it, but it's still a great prayer. All right, so that's the beginning of the day. So we've dealt on page 86 with at nighttime. And, and you may ask, why do they begin with nighttime? Because the original draft said, when we get up in the morning, we constructively review the day past. And someone between the draft and the final uh, version of the big book must have said to Bill, why don't we do this at night instead of in the morning? Why, why don't we get a better night's sleep by reviewing our day at night rather than getting up in the morning and reviewing our day? So that's one of the reasons why it starts this way at night. And then they give, so that page 86 is, is the evening prayer, page 86 and 87 is the morning prayer and meditation. And then these wonderful things during the day. As we go through the day, we pause when agitated or doubtful and ask for the right thought or action. So if we're agitated, we're done, we don't know what we're doing, something happens, God, please give me the right thought or action. 
And then you, you can rely on that. We constantly remind ourselves, we're no longer running the show. Humbly saying to ourselves many times each day that I will be done, that I will not mind be done. And I can tell you that during my years of litigation, I was often up against one lawyer who was particularly irritating, a very, very good lawyer, very honest. I mean, I, I, he didn't, he wasn't a dishonest guy, but he was really good and, 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 and could get my vote because of the things he did. And every so often I'd take a break. I'd say, I'm no longer running the show. I'm no longer running the show. I'm no longer running the show. Thy will not might be done. Thy will not might be done. And I would say this over and over again until I said, oh, I'm no longer running the show. Thy will not might be done. And I go back and I'd be calm. And you know, those of you who, who know about mantras, that these are mantras. That's what they are. You repeat them over and over again until they just calm you down. And it works so well. And, and as Blaine points out in that document I showed you, you, you may remember that when a person next offended, we said to ourselves, this is a sick man, God save me from being angry. How can I be helpful to him? Thy will not might be done. And that's in one of the, that's in the daily prayers that Blaine put out there. So that's, that's it for meditation. And it's five minutes at night and five or 10 minutes in the morning and it's seconds during the day. If you add to that and you can do a daily practice of meditation, 20 minutes a day, a half an hour a day, an hour a day, God bless you. That's wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. I don't call that done at all, but this is what the big book says you should do at the very least. Boy, it would be nice to stop there, I guess, for, for so many reasons, because we're, you know, it's a lot, it's still a lot of work. You know, we got to keep up to date in our, our inventory. We've got to, meditate in the morning we've got to meditate at night we've got to pray we've got to do this we've got to do that and the big book says this is not all there is action and more action faith without works is dead and this is the area where i have see i have an hour and a half and uh you know what maybe maybe i'll, I'll i'm not going to break as i told you but i i may Maybe we'll take 10 minutes for any questions that anyone may have. One question that I'm often asked is, how do I pray to God if I don't believe in God? It's because I no longer care. I just say the prayers, the prayers the way they're written, even though I used to have to translate my deepest values I offer myself to you. I just say God now because it doesn't bother me. Okay. So aside from that, uh, any other any questions that anyone may have, let's give 10 minutes to that. Who's, uh, who's uh, doing this? Well, it doesn't matter. I mean, I can see if the hand is I've got it. Okay, thanks, Amy. Your hand is up. Thank you very much, Amy. Love you. Um, thank you, Lori. Uh, so I have a question on step 10. Um, you were talking about a lot of examples that I've had in my life. So um, <laughs> I'm my... How would you, so on a regular day, I could have like 80 resentments. I don't have, I mean, I have a lot of free time more than most people and a flexible schedule, but I don't have 80 people to call as these like little resentments come up. How do you handle like all- oh, I wouldn't call it. No, no, I, I mean, if you have 80 resentments and you find that they're recurring, I assume that they're recurring resentments the little things like this person cut me off or now I have a mosquito bite or 
<laughs> I well, I, I mean, I would I would write down on step, uh, I would do a step 10. And I, I might write down the things that are still living in my mind. But I would also say, I keep getting annoyed by little things. That would be a resentment. Okay. You know? And, and that's the difference between a step 10 and a step 11. Step 11, how did I react to the guy who cut me off? How did I do this? How did I do that? You know, and, and could I have done better? Could I have been less annoyed or something of that sort? Uh, but in step 10, you would say, what's going on in my life? Why am I annoyed by all these things? You, you know, and what you will probably discover is that there's a lot of, uh, what's, the, what's the term? Is it white noise or something? There's a lot of noise going on in your life and you're not really dealing with it because you're living day to day and not sort of figuring out what's going on in your entire life. That's at least been my experience, the experience of people I know, um, that we don't often acknowledge or understand what's going on. We're living in really hard times, regardless of what's going on in our own lives. Uh, like personally, these are difficult times, times of strife, times of uh, pain and suffering, times of uh, being alone, time, I mean, all kinds of things. And because we've learned to live with it, we don't always notice that it's happening to us and we're not dealing with it. And that's what step 10 really helps us with. Um, you know, the, the fact that you're easily annoyed by a whole bunch of little things is an indication that something else is going on. I, no, my experience is that when I'm annoyed by things like my, my kids spill milk and I yell at them, What's really going on is something else. And I have to deal with that. And, and that's, why, that's why I make that distinction between 10 and 11. 10 is really figuring out what's going on in my whole life. Great question. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Wendy. Kathy W., you're Hi, Laurie. I hear you mention a lot about mentors. Um, but you don't mention a lot about having a sponsor. So I'm curious as to... Um, you're not just necessarily how you're working your program, but how do you view this whole need for a sponsor once you're recovered? Well, I was going to talk about that later, but I'll talk about that now. Um, I do not have anyone I would call a sponsor. I have uh, one or two people I speak to relatively regularly uh, who are some of whom are mentors, uh, people with more, a lot more experience. And, and uh, um, but I have people I do step fives with, the step five part of step 10. Um, but I, I, I sense that in OA, and it's very possible in, in AA as well, that there's a dependence upon sponsors that goes beyond what the big book really talks about. Um, the, the value of a sponsor is as a guide to how to work the steps in order to reach the level of spirituality that gives us freedom from the bondage of food. And that really is, according to the big book, steps zero through nine. And then the responsibility of everyone is to go on and help those who still suffer. That's what step 12 tells us we have to do. Um, I, I know that in so many cases, Sponsors, well, let me put it this way. I've been to meetings where there have been three or four or five newcomers and big meetings, not as big these days, but they used to be even bigger. And, and these are meetings that have particular practices of dealing with sponsors. And uh, are there any sponsors available? And some will say, you know, I'm exaggerating. 
I'm so-and-so, I've been absent for 300 years, and, uh, but I'm not available to sponsor. I have lost 5,000 pounds, but I'm not available to sponsor. Uh, you know, and it goes around the room and no one's available to sponsor. And, and then the, there's a break and all the sponsors are talking to sponsees and the newcomers are alone. And I say to myself, there's something seriously wrong when a meeting whose job it is to help those who still suffer and the individuals whose job it is to help those who still suffer are spending their time with people who don't suffer anymore uh, and, and, not, and don't have time for those who still suffer. So if there's not any sponsors available, I would say, and, and there are people who have recovered, I would say there's something seriously wrong with the practice of sponsoring because people who still suffer are the priority. Um, so I don't have anyone I would call a sponsor. I was asked by one person to keep in regular contact and he has called me his sponsor. I consider him to be a mentor. I don't, I don't you know, and he doesn't use me in any way, shape or form uh, as a sponsor, but I speak to him regularly because we're, we do. Uh, but I don't consider my sponsor and I, I don't know if he by now considers me his sponsor. We're just people who talk about how OA is doing and stuff like that. We're sort of trying to be elder statesmen in, in the words of the AA 12 and 12. Um, I have a few people like that. Um, but I don't have, a, I, I, I would say I don't have a sponsor in, in the normal sense because I've recovered. What do I need a sponsor for? I practice 10, 11 and 12. I have people I do step five with. Where, where, does the, where do the steps say I need a sponsor? I haven't seen that in the steps. I haven't seen that in the big book. You know, when you, when you, when you look at the, the, we'll see this in working with others. You know, you're meeting with a person, having had the experience yourself, you can give them much helpful advice. Let them know you're available if he wants to make a decision, step three, or tell his story, step five. That's it. And then you work side by side, helping others. I don't know if that answers your question. I know that goes against the grain of a lot of people. But I'll talk about that more when we talk about dependence upon other people as opposed to dependence on God. Um, Maria, go ahead. Good morning, everybody. Um, you shared that your uh, guiding principles are truth, Justice, beauty. I can't, I'm sorry, I can't remember the, love, the last love, one. Love, love. Of course. <laughs> yes. I left out the very important one. Um, I'm wondering if you would be uh, willing or if it's not too much of an imposition to talk a little bit about justice, about your, your, how you view justice. Well, part of it might become more political, and I, I would not feel uh, right talking about that. But I have a okay. sense of moral justice that's different from a sense of legal justice. And it involves equality and uh, uh, sharing and cooperation that, that for me is a sense of justice. I was raised in, uh, in, a, in a family that cared greatly about social justice. So that's what justice means to me. Thank you, Laurie. Thank you for the question. Do we have time for one more before we move on? Roz, go ahead. Hi, Laurie. Thanks for this workshop. It's great. Um, 
and whether you've experienced this, which I doubt, or maybe one of your sponsee or one of your protégés has experienced this, um, I, and without getting into the detail of the situation, um, a very big situation had come up in my life, and I did 10 steps on it and um, prayed and talked to others, and everything seemed to be going in the direction that I felt fearful about, and so I moved in that direction anyway, even though I felt the fear. And um, now I have a lot of remorse for wondering if I made the right decision. Have you ever run across something like that, or how do you? Yeah. How do you deal with it, like with program? How do you work it out? Well, first of all, I would say that if you still felt fear about it, that should have gone on your fear pro fear form, and you should have figured out what kind of person your higher power would have you be. So if I feel fear about making an amends or, or doing something, was, I would not do that. Decision. Pardon me? A decision. It, I would it was not about do making it. A decision. Okay. So if I felt fear about making that decision, I would not do it until I outgrew that fear because the fear would be hampering my sense of whether I was making the right decision. But if I made a decision and I did something, and I don't feel that it was the right decision, I would put that down as a resentment. And, you know, if you look at, you know, what I, I mean, I've made decisions. I, I made a decision dealing with career issues. I, I don't want to go into it, but, but it was a very, it ended up being a bad decision. But I, and I did work on that. It was a decision that ended up being a bad decision for me and for some other people. Um, I did I did a step 10 on that. And I looked at my selfish was I want to be right all the time. Uh, uh, dishonesty, I, I'd love to rewrite the past dishonesty, the past occurred, I made that decision. And dishonesty also, I made it with the best of intentions after the most uh, at the, uh, after the most thought I could give to it, trying my best to make it without my defects of character. You know, and that, you know, and, and dishonesty, it isn't the worst decision. It's not the worst thing. I, you know, it was a bad decision, but it wasn't the worst decision. You know, what is it? No one was harmed in the making of this movie, you know, um, or, and, and, and self-seeking. I think I should be omnipotent and omniscient, and I should always know exactly what's going to happen if I make a decision, you know, and fear that I'll continue to make wrong decisions, right? And then I go through the fears, you know, and so I end up saying to myself, you know what? If there's an apology to make, I'll make it. Um, but I did my best and I become much more accepting of what I did, you know, because that, that's what I, that's my answer. That's really my answer. I do a step 10 on the issue. If it's really I mean, bothering I, me. I probably have a lot of stuff tends to do because it was a relocation and it was a big relocation and I'm here. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, yeah, but, but well, you see, let, let's, well, so I, okay. So I don't know what it is. So I would say a resentment would be I'm here and I think I should be there. I don't think I made the right decision. I don't know what to do. You know, I can imagine all kinds of, I mean, I would take that and, and parse it into about 10 resentments, which are probably separate. 
and then do and then go through and all the fears and then make a decision. I mean, you you might end up accepting where you are, but feeling better about it. Or you might end up saying, I'm going to un unmake that decision. You know, I don't know what you're going to do, but whatever you do, step 10 will give you the method of arriving at a decision that you'll feel serene about. At least that's my experience. Okay. All right. Thank you. Let's go on. Now we're into the real stuff. And I have less time than I thought I would have, but that always happens. I always leave something out. Um, and that's fine. So I'm going to share the screen again. And I'm going to talk to you about step 12. The next chapter is entirely devoted to step 12. And I want to start off by quoting to you speeches that Dr. Bob gave. Bob, Dr. Bob was the co-founder. He was a guy who in the 13 years of his sobriety ministered to 5,000 inpatients at a hospital, gave them medical advice, worked with them with alcohol. Uh, he worked so hard. And, um, and his last, he made one last major speech and that was in, um, 1948, and his last speech, he was quite ill and he died shortly afterwards, his last speech, and you can get recordings of these, you can search them on the internet and you can find the recordings. So his last speech is this one, July 30th, 1950, Cleveland. And he says, there are two, or right here, there are two or three things that, I am sharing this with you, there are two or three things that flash uh, in my mind on which would be fitting to lay a little emphasis. One is the simplicity of our program. Oops, sorry about that, guys. The simplicity of our program. Let's not louse it all up with Freudian complexes and things that are interesting to the scientific mind, but have very little to do with our actual AA work. And, you know, I think our fellowship and Joe and Charlie say, said that the AA fellowship became loused up with Freudian complexes and things that are interesting to scientific mind. Inner child work, you know, uh, meditation practices, trying to parse every single uh, inch of meaning in, every, in all the 12 steps, um, spending time on all kinds of things that weren't part of the initial concepts of AA. It says our 12 steps, when simmered down to the last, resolve themselves into the words love and service. We understand what love is and we understand what service is. So let's bear those two things in mind. And you know, uh, that is so true because love in the end is the answer to our, our whole steps four through nine. We learn to sort of love life again and love um, our relationship with life again. And then we realize we cannot keep it unless we give it away. And we have to remember those simple concepts. That's one thing. The other is from his last major speech, which was in 1948. And this is just excerpts so and you can get this one too. And he says, um, in my mind, the spirit of service was of prime importance, but I found it had to be backed up with some knowledge or a subject. 
I used to go to the hospital and stand there and talk. I talked many a time to chap in the bed for five or six hours. I don't know how he ever stood me uh, for five or six hours, but he did. We must have hidden his clothes. Uh, anyway, it came to me that I probably didn't know too much about what I was saying. We are stewards of what we have. I mean, I'm, I'm the one to talk. I just, I'm, I've been talking for 10 hours, but what the hell. Uh, but I'm not talking about myself. I'm not telling my story. I'm talking about what the big book says. We are stewards of what we have. So we are guardians of what we have, uh, trustees of what we have. And that includes our time. I was not giving a good account of my stewardship of time when it took me six hours to say something to this man that I could have said in an hour if I had known what I was talking about. I certainly was not a very efficient individual. So we have, and I, I think that's brilliant stuff. It's very important for us to figure out how to tell our story in a way that will create identification with the person who is still suffering from our addiction. And also I would say in a way that will separate a person who's suffering from our addiction from a person who isn't. So that they identify with us, they identify with us, but other people don't. You know, if, they, if people don't think they're addicted, if people don't have this sense of addiction and this sense of life or death, then they have to think to themselves, why are they in this fellowship? And we have to think to ourselves, why are we making it comfortable for them to stay in a fellowship whose primary purpose is to carry the message of recovery to the 12 steps to those who still suffer? We have to think about this. Everyone can join us. There's no question about that. We can't kick anyone out. And we shouldn't kick anyone out. But are we really creating an atmosphere, both individually and collectively, in which the people who attend understand we're here to deal with a life or death addiction to eating behaviors, to foods, to ingredients, whatever it is, um, that the 12 steps are a solution for. So he talks about that. And then he also talks about this. He says, I said I was quite human. I get to thinking every once in a while, this guy, Bob, is rather a smart individual. He's got this liquor situation right by the tail, proved it and demonstrated, hasn't had a drink for over 13 years, probably could knock off a couple and no one would be the wiser. If you listen to the recording of this, you'll hear people laugh, kind of, you know, cautiously, but they're laughing. And then he says, I tell you, I'm not trying to be funny. These thoughts actually do enter my mind. And the minute they do, I know exactly what has happened. You see, in Akron, we have the extreme good fortune to have a very nice setup at St. Thomas Hospital. The ward theoretically accommodates seven alcoholics, but the good sister Ignatius sees that it's stretched a little bit. She usually has two or more others parked around somewhere. Just as soon as that idea that I could probably polish off a couple enters my mind, I think, I love the way he writes, there he speaks. Uh-oh, how about the boys in the ward? You've been giving them the semi-brush-off for the last few days. You better get back on the job, big boy, before you get into trouble. And I pat her right back, and I'm much more attentive than I've been before I got the funny idea. But I do get it every once in a while, and I'll probably go on getting it whenever I get careless about seeing the boys in the ward. Anytime I neglected them, I was thinking more of Bob than I was of the ward. I wasn't being especially loving. Those fellows had come there indicating their desire for help. And I was just a little too busy to give them much of my time as if they'd been panhandling on the street. Don't want to be bothered with the fellow. 10 cents to get rid of them. That's easy. You could even stand two bits. Not because you love the fellow, 
but just to be relieved of the nuisance of the ha is hanging on your coat sleeve. No one's selfishness, no love at all indicated in that transaction. Excuse me, just lost my earpiece. Um, I think the kind of service that really counts is giving of yourself. And that almost invariably always requires effort and time. It isn't a matter of just putting a little quiet money in the dish, that's needed. But it's not giving much for the average individual days like these. I don't believe that type of giving would ever keep anyone sober. But giving of our own effort and strength and time is quite a different matter. I think that's what Bill learned in New York. And I didn't learn in Akron until we met. And Dr. Bob in Dr. Bob's Nightmare, which is at the end after page 164 of the big book, gives uh, his story is wonderful, but he says, write it on page 180. I spent a great deal of time passing on what I learned to others who want and need it badly. And boy, did he spend a great deal of time doing that. I do it for four reasons. One, sense of duty. There are people who are still suffering. I can help them. I might be able to help them. Two, it is a pleasure. It is a pleasure. You know, as much as my time is spent helping other people who still suffer, when I see something spark in them, when I see that something I've said creates an identification, when I see them work the steps and it just, I don't want this anymore. There's a sense of pleasure that I get in, in being present at the birth of a, of, a, of a new human being. Three, because in so doing, I am paying my debt to the man, that's Bill Wilson, who took time to pass it on to me. I owe hundreds of people that same debt. You know, going back to Bill Wilson, but, uh, but even, uh, even more, just within this fellowship. And because every time I do it, I take out a little more insurance for myself against the possible slip. All right, here are the promises, page 89 of the big book. Practical experience shows that nothing will so much ensure immunity from drinking as intensive work with other alcoholics. It works when other activities fail. I remember reading this chapter when I was first going to OA in the first years. We didn't have any other literature except story, you know, books of, books of stories. And we read the big book and we read the AA 12 and 12. And when we read the chapter working with others, I remember reading it and saying, well, that's what alcoholics do. We have the telephone. And that's all we did. We talked to the phone all the time. But the activity and the actions that they talk about involve moving our bodies and visiting people and doing things. You know, and, and I'm, those of you who may be in AA will, will uh, know this in a way that I don't think occurs in, in OA. In many parts of AA, when someone phones the AA office and says, I need help, they'll send two people to talk to that person. They won't just talk on the phone or say, oh, there's a meeting you can go to. They'll send two people. And uh, the, only, uh, the only intergroup I'm aware of that has ever organized that was, uh, was an intergroup in, in New Zealand. And, and I don't know, maybe there are other groups too. And uh, during COVID, it's more difficult and all that. But my only point is that the act, action that was taken is, 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 is the kind that Dr. Bob talked about, time and effort. And here are the promises. 
No, carry this message to other alcoholics. You can help when no one else can. You can secure their confidence when other fails. others fail. Remember, they are very ill. Here are the promises. Life will take on new meaning to watch people recover, to see them help others, to watch loneliness vanish, to see a fellowship grow up about you, to have a host of friends. This is an experience you must not miss. We know you will not want to miss it. Frequent contact with newcomers and with each other is the bright spot of our lives. Now, because this was written for people who didn't have AA in their city or their town, they give instructions for how to find people to carry the message to. If I found myself in a town that there was no OA, I would probably follow these instructions in some way. We don't have to do that because OA is available to most of us. And with Zoom, OA is, is quite available. They talk about going to doctors or ministers or priests or hospitals and telling them you're available. You may have somebody that can help alcoholics or you may have someone who can help compulsive eaters and, um, and finding someone. And now, how do you talk to them? Well, we're going to talk about the story of Bill. In A Vision for You, page 155, Bill, begin, Bill tells his story about uh, a man, uh, it's talking about him in the third person, but here's Bill's story. Bill gets sober in the town's hospital on December the 12th, 1934. A white light appears to him, he's sober, he no longer wants to drink. He and Lois decide that for the next six months, he will try and create a fellowship. He will try to get people sober using these very simple concepts that his friend Ebby brought him. The concepts were, you get honest with yourself, you get honest with another human being, you make up for the wrongs you've done. That's step four, five, nine. You pray to God for guidance in all things, 11. And you help others without hope of property uh, uh, reward or prestige. Step 12. And he brought people home to, was 120 Clinton, I think, in Brooklyn, where they were living at the time. And he brought all these drunks home. He went to the Bowery and scraped them off the sidewalk and brought them home, talked and talked and talked. Lois went to her job at Macy's. She came home. She cleaned the ashtrays. She vacuumed the floors took all the ashes off, made the dinner, made the coffee, talked everyone into bed, and Bill talked and talked and talked. And it was a disaster. For six months, all the people who came in, they all went out and drank. And they, um, uh, they you know, one, committed, one died by suicide in the house, one stole uh, Lois's big coat, one attacked Lois with a butcher knife, it was a terrible experience. And Bill was sitting with Lois one day and he said, I haven't been able to keep any alcoholic sober. And Lois said, yes, you have, you are sober. And interestingly enough, that's not found in either Al-Anon or AA literature, but it is something that Lois talked about uh, to various people, including Joe and Charlie, and including uh, a, a woman who's passed on who was very active in a way in, in New York, uh, Roberta, some of you may remember her. 
and she became friendly with Lois. And I believe it. I believe that she said this, although it's not in Lois's reminiscences. Uh, I, I don't know why it's not there, but I believe it happened. So Bill began to realize that. And then we'll, we'll tell more that Bill had to learn that the way he was carrying the message wasn't working and that there was a better way of carrying the message. But let's start off with the Mayflower Hotel, May the 11th, 1935. He has a chance, he's sober, he has a chance of a whole business opportunity. They go to Akron, Ohio, he and his business associates, and he stands a chance if they can just take over, uh, it's a stockholder fight, if they can take over leadership of this manufacturing company, the manufacturers, uh, 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 machines for helping for making rubber because Akron was the rubber tire company uh, capital of the world at the time they would make a lot of money everything would be great but the business falls apart they, they lose the vote and his backers abandon him and they leave him in Akron Ohio to see if maybe there's some fraud involved in the proxy vote and he's in the Mayflower Hotel and it's Saturday May the 11th and he's going to drink he knows it. The bar, the bar is there in the Mayflower Hotel, and he feels as if he's going to drink. And by the way, I understand the Mayflower Hotel now. Someday I'll go there. But right now, the Mayflower Hotel is like a, a senior citizen's home. And I was told by some people a few years ago that if you buzz to get in, a voice will say, yeah. And you'll say, I I'm kind of like, I, I sort of come in, you know, and the buzzer opens. And you come in and some very tired guy says, this is where the bar used to be. This is where the phone booth was. This is where the church directory was. Because people make, you know, they're, they're going to Mecca, right? <laughs> they make the pilgrimage. Um, so he's in the Mayflower Hotel. He feels as if he could drink. But he, needs, he realizes he needs to speak to another alcoholic. What Lois says reverberates with him. He needs to speak to another alcoholic. So he, he goes to the church directory, finds a clergyman. He, he, the name is Walter Tunks. Uh, he had heard of a Tunks before. I, I think it rhymes with drunks personally, but he heard of a Tunks before. Um, he says to Tunks, I'm a member of the Oxford groups from New York. I'm also an alcoholic. I need to find another alcoholic to talk to. And Tunks originally thinks that maybe he just wants two alcoholics instead of one, you know, to, to go for a drinking party. But he finally understands, no, no, Bill needs to talk in order to keep sober. He gives him 10 names. Uh, none of the people, uh, because the Oxford groups had visited Akron, Ohio a year and a half before. There was a big Oxford group contingent there. And... Um, he phones members of the Oxford groups, given names given to him by uh, Reverend Tunks, but uh, no one's available. One person gives him a few more phone numbers. One of those phone numbers is that of Henrietta Cyberling, who he thought was the wife of uh, the famous Cyberling who owned the Goodyear Tire Company. And um, he had met him before and he didn't want to speak to the wife, but he finally phones her. Turns out she's the estranged daughter-in-law of the Cyberling um, estate of the Cyberling family. She's living in the, in the guest house or the carriage house uh, on the huge Cyberling uh, estate. There's a picture of it available that uh, it's not just a little carriage house. It's a, it's a pretty beautiful big house. But anyway, she invites him to come. And um, 
she says, I know just the person for you. And that's Dr. Bob. And she phones Dr. Bob and Anne answers. And uh, uh, Henrietta says, uh, I've got this guy. He thinks he has a cure for alcoholism. Well, we'd like to come today, but uh, Bob is, it's Mother's Day tomorrow. And Bob really, he brought me home a, a potted plant. And Bill says, what Anne didn't say was that Bob was underneath the table, potted, <laughs> you know? And so he was drunk out of his mind, uh, but they made an appointment for the next day. So they say in a vision for you, it's called a clergyman led him presently to a certain resident town who though formerly able and respected was then nearing the nadir, the bottom uh, of, of alcoholic despair. He had a desperate desire to stop but saw no way out. He had earnestly tried many avenues of escape. And this is really significant because Dr. Bob had been a member of the Oxford groups for a year and a half. Bill had been a member for six months. Bob was a much more religious man uh, then, then uh, Bill. Bob knew the Bible cold. He and Anne studied it. They practiced with the Oxford groups. Henrietta Cyberling, uh, he had never admitted his alcoholism until Henrietta Cyberling actually um, created, a, I, there's a talk that, she, that you can hear a recording of her, where she actually created a fake Oxford group where everyone was in on it to get Dr. Bob to admit that he was an alcoholic. Um, uh, everyone was supposed to confess their deepest, darkest secrets. Everyone knew that their confessions was designed to get Bob to open up that he was an alcoholic. And he did. And they prayed over him. And he did everything the Oxford group said, but he still continued to drink. So he was hopeless. God wasn't helping him. And here comes Bill to phone to speak to him. And, and they, it's fascinating because, uh, you know, Dr. Bob says, I will only speak for 15 minutes and only because Henriette or Henry they call her Henry uh, wants me to. And they came at five and they left at 11. And Bob and Bill talked to him. And um, so here's Dr. Bob Smith. And, uh, oh God, where is it? Ah, so here is, uh, here's Henry Cyberling. And this is an excerpt from a wonderful book that Bill wrote. It's OA literature proof called AA Comes of Age. It's the history of AA, but it's more than that. It's also a discussion of the principles of AA, how they developed, and then how the traditions developed, and how the concepts developed. It's a brilliant book, really a wonderful book. Um, so here is Dr. Bob and Anne. They stood at Henrietta's door. And he says, um, here is the founder. Um, I don't know why I still get emotional about it, but I do, um, because this is, you know, this is our history. This is right there and then. You've got the meeting with Abby, you've got the moments with Dr. Bob, and what that has done is given millions of people recovery in dozens of addictions. How can you not, how can I not get emotional about when I just think it's right there, just two men, two men talking to each other created a fellowships and gave rise to dozens of other fellowships that have helped millions of people. It's absolutely amazing. Anyway, Bill offers him a drink and then they go to the library and they begin to talk. Now, Bill says, just before leaving Akron, I spoke to Dr. Silkworth about why I hadn't been able to get anyone else to follow what I had done. 
And this is what Silkworth says. He quotes Silkworth as saying this. There's another, another talk he gave where he quotes Silkworth differently. This is a kind of like a, an expanded version of what Silkworth said. Look, Bill, he said, you're having trouble, nothing but failure, because you're preaching at this alcoholics. You're talking to them about the Oxford group precepts of being absolutely honest, absolutely pure, absolutely unselfish, absolutely loving. This is a very big order. Then you top it off by harping on this mysterious spiritual experience of yours. No wonder they point their fingers to their heads and go out and get drunk. Why don't you turn your strategy the other way around? Now, Bill was doing this partly because that's what Epi did to him. We didn't go through Bill's story, but if you read Bill's story, You'll, you'll, hear, you'll see this. His friend, Ebby, came to visit him. Bill knew Ebby's story cold. They had been childhood friends. They had gotten drunk together many times. Bill knew that Ebby was a worse alcoholic than he was, or at least he thought it was. And here was Ebby, stone cold, sober, refusing a drink. Bill says, what's going on? And Ebby says, I'm not drinking anymore. Bill says, how, why? Ebby says, I've got religion. They argue for a, a page and a half in, the, in Bill's story until Ebby says, why don't you choose your own conception of God? And Bill says, this was it. All I had to do was be willing. And then within five, six, seven days, he has this incredible spiritual experience. Bill forgot that he knew Ebby well and that he identified completely with Ebby. He also forgot that he also had imbued in him Dr. Silkworth's description of the body problem, the cravings, and the obsession problem, the mind. Can't stop once you started, can't stop from starting again, the vicious circle that is the double whammy that Dr. Silkworth's theory had. So Bill had forgotten that by the time that Ebby told him, I've got religion, and then said, well, choose your own conception of God, that the spiritual answer is the answer to your problem. Bill had forgotten all that background and never shared it with the people he spoke to. He just preached to them from on high. The cold wind of a mountaintop came through me. You got to get honest with yourself. You got to get honest with another human being. He, he wasn't getting to the point of being desperate. So this is what Dr. Silkworth was saying. He says, why don't you turn your strategy the other way around? Aren't you the very fellow who once showed me that book by the psychologist James? which says that deflation at great depth is the foundation of most spiritual experiences. There's a wonderful book called The Varieties of Religious Experience. It's available on the internet. You can get it for free, but you can also get nice editions of it too. Very long, complex, never uses the word deflation at great depth, but it does describe the number of spiritual experiences in which people are at the absolute bottom of their lives and they cry out for help. And that's when they convert into spiritual uh, beings. And, and so that's in essence what the variety of religious experience is about. Have you forgotten all about that? Have you also forgotten that Dr. Carl Jung in Zurich told a certain alcoholic, this is Roland Thatcher, uh, Roland Hazard, that his only hope of salvation was the spiritual experience. This is also found partially in the big book, uh, Dr. Jung. No, Bill, you've got the cart before the horse. You've got to deflate these people first. Give them the medical business. Give it to them hard. Pour it right into them about the obsession that condemns them to drink and the physical sensitivity or allergy of the body that condemns them to go mad or die. 
if they keep on drinking, coming from another alcoholic, one alcoholic talking to another, maybe that'll crack those tough egos deep down. And uh, just to, to uh, quote to you from uh, Three Talks to the Medical Societies by Bill, an AA pamphlet, he says, in fact, we aim to produce a crisis to cause him to hit bottoms, as AAs say. Of course, you'll understand this is all done by indirection. We never pronounce sentences, nor do we tell any alcoholic what he must do. We don't even tell him he's an alcoholic. Relating the seriousness of our own cases, we leave him to draw his conclusions. But once he's accepted the fact that he is an alcoholic and the further fact that he's powerless to recover unaided, the battles have won. As the AAs have it, he's hooked. He's caught as if in a psychological vice. If the jaws of it do not grip him tightly enough at first, more drinking will almost invariably turn up the screw to the point where he'll cry enough. Then as we say, he's softened up. This reduces him to the state of complete dependence on whatever or whoever can stop his drinking. He's in exactly the same mental fix as a cancer patient who becomes dependent, abjected, abjectly dependent, pathetically dependent, if you will, on what you men of science do for cancer. I love this next sentence. Better still, he becomes sweetly reasonable, truly open-minded as only the dying can be. So this is an example of the approach that the big book says we should be taking based on the experience that Bill had with Dr. Bob. What Dr. Silkworth, what Lois told him he needed the alcoholic to talk to, that he kept sober by talking to others even though they didn't sober up, that he needed to talk to them about deflation at great depth, that he needed to talk about the medical business. All those came together in Akron, Ohio. And this is what Bill says. In my first conversation, I bore down heavily on the medical hopelessness in the AA comes of age of Dr. Bob's case using the obsession plus allergy theme. Though Bob was a doctor, this was news to him, bad news. What really always, he knew spiritual matters better than I. He had paid little attention to my spiritual story. Of course, Dr. Bob knew the Oxford groups better than Bill did. What really did hit him hard was the medical business, the verdict of inevitable annihilation. And the fact that I was an alcoholic and knew what I was talking about from personal experience made the blow a shattering one. And that's what Dr. Bob says about Bill. This man knew because he experienced what I had experienced. It was Dr. Silkworth's idea confirmed by William James that struck him with great death. And now what he says is so crucial. Our talk was a completely mutual thing. I had quit preaching. I knew that I needed this alcoholic as much as he needed me. Uh, this was it, that's a typographical error. I needed this alcoholic as much as he needed me. And this is the desperation that Bill had. He phoned 12, 13 people in order to find someone to talk to because he needed to talk to someone or else he would go back drinking. Clancy, that great speaker says, this is a program of contradictions. We give it away in order to keep it. We admit powerlessness in order to get power. And, and this dedication is so important. So we go back to the chapter working with others. They talk about when you discover a prospect, find out all about, about, about how to groom the person 
they come to OA now. They come to our meetings, so that's how we find them. But there's one, a couple of points. My friend asks him if he wants to quit for good. If he says yes, his attention should be drawn to you as a person who has recovered, a person who no longer wants to go back to alcohol, a person who is sober and happy sober and content sober and serene sober, not a person who's dieting and hanging on by white knuckles, but a person who happily goes through life and deals with the stresses of life and still doesn't want to eat. You should be described to him as one of a fellowship who as part of their own recovery, try to help others. In other words, they're doing you a favor. And this is so important to understand. You know, people say, well, the reason the way and pay plans work is that um, you're, you're, you're committing yourself to something, you're paying, you know? And, and, and with us, it's, you can just come in, no. If they understand they're doing you a favor, they're listening to you as a favor to you, they'll do that. They'll be much more interested, I think. And then um, uh, we, uh, we have this whole part about what to talk about. And from page 91, see your man alone, to page um, approximately page uh, 95, they talk about the first meeting. I'm going to summarize it for you and only deal with some of the significant sections of it, but because we're, we're going to run out of time. But basically, the instructions are these. You tell your own story. You tell your drinking habits. And they say, tell them in a way that explains both the allergy of the body or the physical cravings and the obsession of the mind. So I tell my stories of compulsive eating. I tell my stories of the hand going to the mouth and not being able to stop and saying, I can't, I have to stop, I have to stop. I tell my disgusting story of eating an entire goose skin and all the fat dripping off. And I tell the story about how I went into a diner, was eating this greasy food and someone vomited right beside me and I kept on eating, you know, because I couldn't stop. I, I talk about my binge foods and what I discovered that it's just like alcohol. I can't, once I start, I can't stop. And then I give all the reasons that I've ever had for going off my diet, all the reasons for eating stuff that I know I shouldn't be eating. Some of them are deeply emotional. Again, those who have suffered tremendous stress and trauma can tell a much better version of the story than I can because I have not suffered that uh, stress and trauma. I've had difficult times, so I talk about them, but nothing like the horrors that I've heard from some of my friends in this, in this fellowship. They can tell an even more powerful story. Much of, I mean, even more, much more power, infinitely more powerful story. But as, a re as one of the reasons, but they can also tell the other reasons that they sometimes give themselves, like they made it for me, or uh, I'm in this town, I'm in New Orleans, how can I not have a beignet, you know, or something like that, or, um, or uh, it's organic, so it's got to be healthy. It's organic ice cream. Um, and, and whatever the reasons are, you tell that story. Do they identify? That's the question. 
and you have to listen carefully to them. You, you know, when you read this, and I really urge you to read this chapter, you'll see very clearly how it's a personalized sales talk. If they want, if they're in a light mood, you tell your stories in a humorous way. If they're in a dark mood, you tell the stories in a dark way. Every person has to be treated differently. You know, if, if you're a, an overeater and they're undereaters, you have to learn how to tell your story in such a way that they also identify with the idea of eating behaviors that they are compulsive about. They may be different from yours. You know, you may believe that you may have a sugar and flour problem, but they may have a fat problem. And you have to identify, you have to tell them that it's their issue, their ingredients, their eating behaviors, but that the net result is you can't stop once you've started. So, you know, this tailor making is at the heart of this whole set of instructions in working with others. When he sees you know, bottom page 91, all about the drinking game, commence to describe yourself as an alcoholic. If you're satisfied, if he's a real alcoholic, begin to dwell on the hopeless feature of the malady. Talk about the, the mental conditions surrounding that first drink. They say, don't refer to this book. Probably not. I, I, you know, a lot of compulsive eaters would wonder why you're referring necessarily to the big book right off the bat, but it doesn't matter. Continue to speak of alcoholism as an illness, of fatal malady. Talk about the conditions of the body and mind. Keep his attention focused mainly on your personal instinct, uh, experience. Even though at the bottom on page 92 and going on to 93, even though your protege may not have entirely admitted his condition, he's become very curious to know how you got well. You're just telling him your problem. It's obvious that you're well, that you're not drinking anymore. How did you get from A to B? Let him ask that question, if you will. Then look at the italics. Tell him exactly what happened to you. Stress the spiritual feature freely. You know, you've got to give them the goods. You've got to tell them the way out is not the way you think. The way out is to have some kind of spiritual harmony with what you deeply believe in, to have some kind of spiritual awakening. But listen to the warnings that they give about how you speak about this because I think that's missed in our fellowship. If the man be agnostic or atheist, we, we already make it emphatic. He does not have to agree with your own conception of God. He can choose any conception he likes, provided it makes sense to him. The main thing is he'd be willing to believe in a power greater than himself than he lived by spiritual principles. That's fine. We discussed that and, and we have to emphasize that. And you have to listen carefully to know whether this person is a non-believer. Um, and that they also say when dealing with such a person, You'd better use everyday language to describe spiritual principles. There's no use arousing any prejudice he may have against certain theological terms and conceptions about, what she, about which he may already be confused. Don't raise such issues, no matter what your own convictions are. I'll, I'll, I'll make a deal with any people around here. I will not say that my higher value, that my deepest values are truth, love, justice, and beauty. If you don't say, I rely on God whom I choose to call X, Allah, Jesus Christ, or whatever. Why do you say it? I say deepest values because there are too many people around who talk about their own particular religion and talk about God as an, as an existing being that can do things in this world. If they didn't do that, 
And they, people just said, whatever spiritual values you want, I would not have to emphasize because there are so many agnostic and atheists among us. I can tell you that there are. I would not have to emphasize deepest values. But the fact is, and I've told you this already, every time I talk about the chapter we agnostics, people come up to me and thank me because they are afraid to speak in their OA meetings about what they don't believe in as well as what they do believe. Because they feel that they're in a group of religious people who have specific religions, or even if they don't have specific religions, they have gods that are very different from their deepest values. And so different, you know, you know and our, our literature is like this, right? God will do for you what we could not do, we could not do for ourselves. So our literature is full of this kind of active God that lives in this world, but is a supreme being. And so the, the literature is full of that, our meetings are full of that, and the big book is saying, be so careful not to be specific. You know, when, when you hear the words, when you say the words, and it comes so easily because of, of your beliefs and because it's the vast majority of, of people who believe this, God must have had a plan for me because this happened or that happened, or God was listening to my prayers, or God found me a parking spot. You can't know how much work it takes for a despairing, sad, pathetic, agnostic or atheist to listen to those words and say, what's going to happen to me? How am I ever going to believe that? Okay, so I only say this, just be aware that there are people like me in the rooms. Now, again, I was brought into this fellowship by a man who told me I could take my addiction as seriously as he took his alcoholism and who I knew wasn't a believer in any kind of God and who had been in, OA, in AA for many years. And he introduced me to many people who didn't even talk about religion or, or their God. So I was ready and I was desperate and I didn't care that much. And I have studied so much philosophy and, and theology that I can make translations pretty easily in my head. But there are a lot of people who can't. And there are a lot of people who grew up with angry, vengeful gods who believe that they're, they're such sinners that they will always, you know, that God will never listen to them. And to hear that you talk about, oh, God has done this for me. My God will never do that for me. You have to be so careful, especially when you're talking to people individually. But I would suggest also meetings not to try, even subconsciously foist your version of God onto other people. I told you I'm going to be provocative. And I am being provocative, and I hope you like me enough to listen to me. Take what you like and leave the rest, but I'm, I'm preaching now. Maybe I should switch to my God visual background. I don't know. Um, but they also say your prospect may belong to religious denomination. I, this is tough love here. His religious education and training may be far superior to yours. Again, on page 90, uh, 93. Um, he will be curious to learn why his own convictions have not worked and yours do. Well. He may be an example of the truth that faith alone is insufficient. To be vital, faith must be accompanied by self-sacrifice and unselfish constructive action. Admit he probably knows more about religion than you do. But listen, this is tough love. Call to his attention the fact that however deep his faith and knowledge, he could not have applied it or he would not drink. There's a toughness in that in that. And there's a toughness that's picked up later on in the book. You should know, for instance, that Sister Ignatia, who Dr. Bob talked about at the hospital, 
Um, in a talk, talk uh, I, I've heard her talk on two occasions, uh, a recording of her talks, uh, two talks. One is she said that Dr. Bob was never, he would give of himself completely. But if there were people in the ward who were slackers, he would say, kick them out. They're just not interested. Pretty tough, eh? Keep coming back. It works if you work and bring a lot of love. Kick them out. The other one, she said, and this was a shock to me. I didn't know this. She said it was a shock to her, was that once you leave the ward, you can't go back. One time and that's it. She said, I wondered about that. These were people who were suffering. And then I realized, if we keep saying you can always come back to, to the ward, this is the dry out ward, then they'll keep using it as a temporary hangout. They'll keep sort of saying, I'll get sober for a while, and then I'll go out and drink. I'll get sober for a while, I'll go out and drink. So there's a toughness to this. And we'll see this toughness build up more and more as we talk, as, as we read more and more in the, in the book. I'm mindful of the time. Um, so they go on, page 94, outline the program of action, explaining how you made a, uh, made a self-appraisal, how you straighten out your past. It is important for him to realize that your attempt to hit, pass this on to him plays a vital part in your own recovery. Actually, page 94, he may be helping you more than you are helping him. I mean, this is so mind-blowing. And sometimes I have to remember it. Sometimes I'll spend hours and hours working with someone who then just leaves. I'll think, oh, God, did I waste my time? I did not waste my time because I'm so, I'm abstinent. And I'm still spiritually well. And I'm giving of myself without hope of property, reward, or prestige, without even hope that they'll recover. I'm just giving of myself. And they say, fine, he's, you're, not, you're not under pressure. You needn't see you again if he doesn't want to. Your candidate may give reasons why I need not follow the program. That's fine. Don't wear out your welcome, page 95. Give him a chance to think it over. If he's not interested in a solution, if he expects you to act only as a banker for his difficulties, you may have to drop him. If he's sincerely interested and wants to see you again, ask him to read this book in the interval. After doing that, he must decide for himself whether he wants to go on. If he thinks there's another way of doing it, let him go on. You know, I told you I, I, I interviewed hundreds and hundreds of people who were victims of sexual physical abuse. The vast majority of the people I interviewed were, became drug addicts and alcoholics. Many of them, I don't know whether the majority, but many of them had stopped drinking, had stopped their addictions. Most of them had not done it through AA. They did it by reaffirming the spiritual values of the indigenous people of Canada, uh, going back to the roots of their, of their living that had been taken away from them by the residential schools that were run on sort of a, well, a Christian model. And they reawakened what may have been only inherent in their souls, in a sense, or, or maybe what had been brought to them by their parents or their elders. But that's, most of them just did that. They went back to the sweat lodges and to the, and to the drumming and, 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 um, and the um, smudges. And that's where they found their release from, from their addiction. So there are many paths to spiritual awakening. The 12 steps provide a guaranteed path, but it's not the only path. Don't be discouraged if your prospect does not respond to one. Search out another alcohol and try again. Don't keep beating your head against a brick wall. 
If you leave such a person alone, he may soon become convinced he cannot recover by himself. All right. Now you're making a second visit. He's read this volume. Here's the, here's the whole definition of sponsorship. He has read this volume and says he's prepared to go through the 12 steps. Having had the experience yourself, you can give him much practical advice. Let him know you're available if he wishes to make a decision. Step three, the big book says you should take step three with some spiritual advisor and tell his story. Step five, but don't insist upon it if he prefers to consult someone else. They tell me he's broken homeless. If you want, you can find him a job. If you want, you can have him come home with you, but don't, don't put any pressure on your family to do this. Helping others is the foundation stone of your recovery. Um, they talk about all the things that you may have to do. Um, all this on page 97. I've done some of it. I'm available. Someone phones me in the middle of the night uh, in, in my hometown and says, I'm about to eat a donut. I, I would go out and talk to them. I would do that at three or four in the morning, just because I think anyone from AA would do the same thing. If you phone someone and say, I'm about to have a beer, I'll be right there. I would do that. If they've already had the donut, I'd say, phone me, phone me when, you're, when you're not drunk. You know, I don't, want, I don't need to talk to you now. Um, but here's what I want to talk about. For the type of alcohol, bottom page 97 going on to 98, for the type of alcoholic who is able and willing to get well, little charity in the ordinary sense of the word is needed or wanted. The men who cry for money and shelter before conquering alcohol are on the right, wrong track. Yet we do provide each other with these things. They say it's not the matter of giving that's in question, but when and how to give. The minute we put our work on a service plane, service in this case is not what we call service. Service is just doing things because you got to do them. The alcoholic commences to rely upon our assistance rather than upon God. He clamors for this or that, claiming he can't master alcohol until his material needs are cared for. Nonsense, the shortest sentence in the big book. Some of us have taken very hard knocks to learn this truth. Job or no job, wife or no wife. We simply do not stop drinking so long as we place dependence upon other people ahead of dependence on God. Burn the idea into the consciousness of every man that he can get well regardless of anyone. The only condition is that he trust in God and clean house. And that I take as being gospel. No one should be dependent upon me for their recovery. If I'm their sponsor, they're going to be dependent not on me, but upon uh, their power, higher power. They're going to have to find their higher power, and I'm not going to be their higher power. And this goes contrary, I think, to the actions of many types of sponsoring that go on in OA, and I understand go on in AA as well, where the sponsor tells people what they must, what diet plan of eating they must have, when they do the steps, how they do the steps, um, how quickly they do the steps, whether they're ready to go on to another step, uh, whether they should go on vacation. They should phone at six o'clock in the morning. And if it's 6.05 and you do that three times, you're fired. You know, uh, phone every day. I don't have people phone me every day. Why would I want to waste my time listening to them talk every day when their job, their time should be spent at working the goddamn steps. You know, think about it. Every time I listen to someone talk about their day-to-day -day problems, 
I'm wasting their time and my time. If they have problems, that's what step four is all about. They should get abstinent and get on to step four as quickly as they can. Because step four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine will give them the answers to their problems. I'm not going to give them the answers to problems. My answers to their problems might be different from their answers to their problems because they have a different higher power from mine. And, and, and so I, I work with people where they are. I don't have one set way of working the steps with them. I encourage them to use the big book. And most of them who come to me want to use the big book. So we end up doing the big book. But, you know, I'm not going to force a person to read. You know, I will, I will often say to people, you want me to sponsor you? Let me tell you, I'm not there for day-to-day -day support or comfort. I'm there to give you whatever guidance experience I have on how to work the steps to recover. It's the steps that will get you recovery, not me. I, I, I will say in my experience, three plans are necessary before you begin to work the steps. The first is a plan of eating. I can be very helpful to you to develop a plan of eating by which you abstain from your compulsive eating behaviors and your compulsive foods and ingredients and work towards and maintain a healthy body weight. I have a lot of experience and I'd be happy to help you. Secondly, a second plan of eating, a second plan is a timeline for working the steps as quickly as possible. So that psychologically, you know, you only have to hang on for X number of weeks or months. Because by the time of, you finish step nine, you won't want to go back to what you have. You'll be in the spiritual world. So it's just a matter of hanging on white knuckling. And the third plan is a strategy for dealing with day-to-day -day, uh, issues. If you work in a place where there's always candy on the, on the, on the, on the table, if you, if you live in a house in which other people bring in a lot of binge foods, if you pass by a whole bunch of fast food places and you know that you're gonna go into them, what are you going to do to keep abstinent and to keep away from those temptations in the short period of time between the time you get abstinent on your plan of eating and you finish step nine. How are we gonna handle that? I say very often people find that phoning in their food or texting their food and planning their food and having a food buddy is very helpful. Don't use me for that. Use someone who could use a phone call. Pick someone in, in your meeting who looks as if they're floundering and say, can I help you? Not, not can I help you, can you help me? Can you listen to me phone in my food? Can you be there if, if I'm about to eat something? Can I call you? Because then you're doing good for them as well as for yourself. You won't do any good calling me. And you'll just be taking time away from my ability to help other people. You can see that this is kind of different from the way a lot of people uh, sponsor. I, I will then say to them, what I'd ask you to do is read in the big book and I, I asked them to read some stuff I've written but that's neither here nor there we read the big book read the doctor's opinion there more about alcoholism bill's story uh, up to we agnostics about 70 pages and let's meet and make a point to meet two three hours um and i then see how well they read how well they retain how much they identify because if they identify right away with the concept of craving and they know what they have to abstain from and we work out a plan of eating and we, we help or we work out the other plans. I'm not gonna force them to read and parse every single paragraph in Bill's story and more about alcoholism and there is a solution. 
If they say, oh, more about alcoholism, there's Jim, there's Fred, there's the jaywalker, and there's the man of business. Why would I care if they've read the whole, if they have read the whole chapter? On the other hand, sometimes they need to be, they can't understand the words. They have an aversion to reading a book about alcoholics or written by alcoholics. I tell, I, I give them the instructions without forcing them to read the book. I don't have one way of taking someone through the steps because it depends on the person. And they might say to me, very few people have, I want to do it a different way. You know what? I'll say, let's try it. Because my job is not to do it my way. My job is to do it, is to help them recover. Okay. So I, I got to tell you, it's, I, I, I don't want them to be dependent upon me. Uh, I, I help them get to step four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine as quickly as they can. If they relapse, I say to them, um, there are two possible causes of relapse. Either it's the body or the mind, right? Because that's our problem, body and mind. Maybe your plan of eating still has some stuff you shouldn't be eating. Maybe there are eating behaviors you're indulging in that you shouldn't be indulging in. Why do you have this snack? You know, I often will ask people, why do you have a snack at night? What do you need it for? Are you not getting the proper nutrition? Well, I get hungry. So what? Go to sleep. Drink some water. You know, I mean, that kind of stuff. Um, uh, the, maybe their strategy for dealing with temptations isn't good enough. I'll say, why not try this? Say that you will have this food that you're tempted to eat after you've had two glasses of water, read 10 pages of OA or AA literature, and written five pages of gratitude. If you can do all that and still want that stuff, it's yours. And of course, you know, you can't do that. Um, and, and, and I take them through four, four through nine. If they want to do step five with me, I do it with them and I give them whatever feedback. If they don't want to do step five with me, I give them the instructions from the big book. Um, if they want me any help in eight and nine on the complex amends, I'm happy to help them. And then by the time they finish step nine, if they've been rigorously honest and they've been absent, they no longer want that stuff. And they've reached the, the realm of spirituality. Then I give them my lecture on steps 10, 11, and 12. And I say, I'm available if you do want to do, if you need any advice or experience on dealing with sponsees, because you're just starting. And I'm also available if you want to hear my, the, if you want me to hear the step five part of your step 10 or help you with your step eight and nine part of your step 10. And now go and prosper. And that's what I do. Every sponsor is a unique person and every sponsee is a unique person. And therefore, there is no one way to sponsor. Um, I'm almost done. Um, there's so much more I could say. Uh, could I have 10 more minutes? Would that be possible? Would any, if I could have 10 more minutes, that would make me feel good. Because then I could speak for 10 more minutes, open the uh, floor for 10 minutes or any questions. And then I, I want to end. I have about five minutes of ending. So Please the big book. You. Is that okay? Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Um, so the big book goes on, talks about the family. I, I just wanted to point out a few important things. Both you and the new man must walk day by day in the path of spiritual progress. If you persist, remarkable things will happen. Follow the dictates of a higher power. You will presently live in a new and wonderful world, no matter what your present circumstances. I, actually, I had a friend who was an AA for many, many years. He 
developed a business, made a lot of money from it, then tried to franchise it and lost it all. I mean, he became penniless, bankrupt. I saw him about a year after I heard, heard that he'd become bankrupt and he was just happy, just happy. He had a copy of the AA 12 and 12 with him. This is my Bible. He says, so what are you doing now? And I'm, I'm going to use one bad word, but this is the word he used. I said, what are you doing now? He says, oh, I'm an orderly at a hospital. I said, yeah. He says, yeah. He said, I clean shit off men and give them dignity. I thought, wow, he's living in a new and wonderful world. He has found a meaning in the work that he does. I would find it disgusting, but he understands that what he is doing is truly a useful function in life. And I think that's exactly what that means, no matter what your present circumstances, you will presently live in a new and wonderful world. He was living in the world of the spirit. It was one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen in my life. Bottom page 100, assuming we're spiritually fit, we can do all sorts of things alcoholics are not supposed to do. People have said we must not go where liquor is served. We must not have it in our homes. We must shun friends who drink, et cetera, et cetera. We meet these conditions any day, every day. An alcoholic who cannot meet them still has an alcoholic mind. In our belief, page 101, any scheme of combating alcoholism which proposes to shield the sick man from temptation is doomed to failure. But you can't mention food in the meeting because if you do, that will tempt people. Well, think about it. You know, there's a, a wonderful uh, OA speaker. I've heard him so many times, wonderful guy who talks about being in a meeting where you couldn't mention food. And the speaker was saying, um, and then I, I took these white balls of creaminess and I ate them. And he said, what is she talking about? What, what, what? And he talked to two of his friends after the meeting, what the hell was she talking about? And each one had a different picture in their mind of what those little white balls of creaminess were. And they went up there and said, what the hell were you talking about? And she said something that's different from the other three. I think talking, you know, can you imagine going to an AA meeting and having someone say, and then I had a drink of a brown fizzy liquid? Can I tell my eating my goose skin story or eating the whole tub of ice cream? in a way that makes sense without having people stop, think even more. And then I ate an entire tub of a mixture of high fat dairy product and, uh, and, and, and an extract of the cane plant or something like that. I mean, think about it. And people say, oh, sugar and flour, big deal you talk of sugar and flour when you really should be talking about the specific foods that contain the sugar and flour because that's where the identification comes. You know, so that's one of my provocations that I think I've pointed out. I just wanted to point out this most wonderful little suggestion here. Our rule is not to avoid a place where there's drinking if we have a legitimate reason for being there. And do should we be going to parties or places where there's there's food? Ask yourself on each occasion, have I a good social business or personal reason for going to this place? When you think about it, it's such a brilliant thing. I used to, we used to have friends who, who used to have uh, parties that were often not enjoyable because of their children and how their children acted. And they were very dysfunctional. And I didn't want to go to those parties. And, 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 and then I thought to myself, what is my social occasion for doing that? Why am I going there? Because I love my friends and I want to show that I love them. 
And I was able to go there with a purpose. It's very, very wonderful. All right, page 102, your job now is to be at the place where you may be of maximum helpfulness to others. So never hesitate to go anywhere if you can be helpful. Look at the activity that's required that's thought of. Um, and I'm just gonna finish this, then I'll take, a, I will, we'll take 10 minutes of questions and I'll, I'll finish up. Um, for me, sponsorship, it should be efficient. You should be working towards and maintaining a healthy body weight. You should be, I believe, tolerant, flexible, and dedicated, and you should be available. I have never turned, once in my life, 25, 30, 25 years ago, I turned down a sponsorship because I thought there might be something uh, sick in, in, in the relationship. I'm not sure I would do that now, but that's the only time I've ever said no. I take on sponsees, but I also have a balanced life. And I, uh, well, my wife might not think so, but I try to balance my, my social and personal obligations along and my, some of my business obligations along with my work. I schedule people. I don't, I don't take the ad hoc phone call because I don't see the need for an ad hoc phone call. You know, how are you doing? Just checking in. I don't need a check-in. And why do you need a check-in? If you're about to eat something, that's something different. That is something you shouldn't, but what do you need to check in for? Go and do step four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine. Or if you've already done step four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine, go help someone. And you won't help me because I've recovered already. Okay, um, now, so people often fire me because I, I just don't provide them much. Uh, I just say, you wanna work the steps? I'm here to help you. Um, I wanna talk a bit about meetings. I think every meeting should in some way, shape or form, give a sense of what our problem is and that the solutions are the steps, not the tools, not fellowship, not the support group, but the, and not love, but the steps. Because our primary purpose, Tradition 5, is to carry our message of recovery from our addiction through the 12 steps to those who still suffer. So meetings have to give some sense that the steps are the solution to the problem. And they also have to give some sense of what the problem is in order for people to be able to know whether this is the right place for them. I've been to too many meetings. Hey, I've run too many meetings where the sole purpose of that meeting was to provide moral and emotional support for people who felt bad about their lives. That's not our job. Our job is to carry the message of recovery through the 12 steps to those who still suffer. And if we just allow people to come to our meetings and just dump, without giving them the sense that there is a solution, then we're just providing them with an excuse not to work the steps, but simply to feel good about how bad they feel, to live in their self-pity. Tough, tough words. But let me tell you a, a, a quick story. I was relapsing for seven years. I ended up going to a really good recovered meeting, lots of good recovery. I enjoyed going to that meeting. People would say, how are you, Laurie? I'd say, fine. They'd say, great, nice to hear your talk. Keep coming back. You know, love to hear you, love to see you. And I was dying inside. I was relapsing. Till one day the shyest woman in the room came up to me 
And she said, how are you, Lori? And I said, fine. And she went like this and said, I mean, really? Oh, you know, I'll never forget that moment. I wish I knew what day it was. I remember where I was and, and all that because she had the love to confront me. You know, one of my mentors in this program is to say, honesty without compassion is cruel, but compassion with, without honesty kills in this, in this fellowship. And we are so nice and we haven't yet figured out how to say in a nice and loving way as she did, what the hell is going on with you? Now, I don't say it like that. I mean, I would never say that, of course. People, there are a lot of vulnerable uh, people and, 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 and broken people who come through our doors and they deserve all the compassion in the world. But they also deserve the straightness of saying, we are here to help those who need help, who identify with our problem and who are willing to work the steps. And to listen to people cry in their cups day in and day out to make it comfortable for them to do that without making it also uncomfortable for them to stay in that thing because everyone else is talking about recovery and it's available and I'm willing to help. I'm a sponsor, I'm here. That's really uh, something that we really have to think about. Ah, there's so much more I could talk about. I just wanna end with this, open up for questions and then I wanna, I want about two or three minutes afterwards. I told you that all kinds of people, of my people I idolize in this fellowship, don't use the big book uh, as, as their set of instructions. They use other methods. But we have four things in common. One is we know that our addiction is life or death. We take it as seriously as the alcoholic takes alcohol, the drug addict takes drugs. Second, we were abstinent while we worked the steps. Third, we worked the steps as quickly and as honestly and as well as we could and recovered. And fourth, we help others as if our lives depend on it. One of my wonderful idols in this fellowship, completely different way of working the steps than I, from mine, but she's one of the most wonderful people I've ever known. She says, everyone wants what I have, but no one's willing to work as hard as I do to get it. And so there's so much work to be done. I go to two meetings a week besides all the other work I do in this fellowship. And I go to meetings now to carry the message, not to get it. I don't go to meetings for support. I go to find people I can help because that's my job. Okay, it's 10.56, uh, 11.56 for you guys. It's getting late. Um, 10 minutes of questions and then give me a, a little bit of a chance to do a little fitting finale. And we'll, we'll end this. Thank you. If you'd like to ask a question, please raise your hand. You may be exhausted. Maybe there are no questions. I, I actually it. have a question. Uh, okay. I'm going to go and then Kira will go. It's actually with regards to something that you said um, about, I guess, I guess four or four through nine with regards to um, our fellowship seeing a lot in the, in the, defect of dishonesty in not telling a truth when it needs to be told. How do we reconcile that? How do we amend, uh, uh, you know, our behavior? Um, I mean, if we have to tell truths, 
but still not go back and, and say something I should have said. I, I don't know if I'm being clear, but like, how do we move forward honestly without going backwards and being like, I never said this, but it needed to be said. I, I oh, okay. thank you. Well, I mean, the there are many occasions where the amends are, I should have said this. The next question is whether saying this now would be more helpful than harmful. And sometimes the answer is no. You know, so, I mean, that's why it's brilliant that Bill separated eight and nine. Eight is, I should have said this at the time. Nine is, would saying it now be helpful? I, I gave the example, you know, I'm sorry I did not tell you 30 years ago that you needed a psychiatrist and now look at you. You know, I would never say that to anyone. Mom, I've hated you for 20 years, but now I love you. You know, and, and I told be you, I more another example. Well, I just want to, if it's, if it's an, I should, I should have been more honest about a situation that's not working, which is still not working. And I have to be honest about that now. Well, I would say if it does more harm than good, you should not be. If it does more good than harm, you should be. I don't have an answer Thank to that you. question. Uh, no, I appreciate it. It's a good test. Um, yeah. And I appreciate it. Did you, I don't want to cut you off if there was more to the answer. Oh, that's it. Okay, Kira, then Judith, then Carolee, go ahead. Hi, um, thank you so much for this whole weekend and, and today. And I heard exactly what I needed to hear. So thank you, thank you. Um, my question, I guess, is just about being direct with sponsees and balancing that compassion, I guess just balanced generally um, and that ability to, to be straight with them, be compassionate or with your time, like sponsoring a lot of people, has that come, has that become more natural to you through time and experience or are there things like right now that would help with that? Thank you. Yes, no, I, I mean, I have sponsored people who never get out of step one, I mean, you know, and I've listened to them and listened to them. Ah, but you don't understand, Lori, you know, this is terrible or that's terrible and you don't understand, you know, and, and uh, at a certain point, and it depends on the person, sometimes people just have to vent for a very long time. They have to know that they're understood. And sometimes, but at certain points, I say to people in the most loving way, my job, I'm not a therapist, I'm not a friend, I'm not a lawyer, that's for sure. Uh, you know, I'm not a counselor. I'm not, I can't help you with your problems. I can tell you how I found a solution to my problems through the 12 steps. I am here to help you if you want to, if you recognize the seriousness of your eating addiction, and if you want to work the 12 steps as a solution, I tell you the experience of millions of people is that that will also solve your problems or at least allow you to accept them if you can't solve them. Um, I should stop, did I stop sharing? Yes. Um, and, but you have to decide, are you one of us? And if you are, I'll help you however I can, but that means you have to work, you know? And it's your decision. I'm here whenever and wherever you need me. And I've had to say that at times. And people sometimes say yes, and sometimes they say they don't call me anymore. You know, 
but it, it takes time. And, and very often in the early days, I would do a step 10 on them. They'd go on my list. I don't know what to do about so-and-so. Or I'd ask someone with more experience to help me in that respect. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've asked the sponsees to take on people that I thought would be really difficult um, because I thought, boy, they could learn very quickly some of the issues that it took me a few years to learn, you know? Yeah, no, it's very hard. It's very hard. My compassion, and, and, and especially because I haven't suffered the way other people have suffered. So it's not fair for me to say, you know, stop your whining. I mean, they've suffered, I haven't. Um, and sometimes I think it's, 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 I will often, often, I'll sometimes have them talk to someone who has suffered more than I have. Or I will say, maybe you should talk to so-and-so or something like that. But I, I also, as a man, sponsoring women, I have found that uh, a lot of women in our fellowship take any even sort of a direct talk as being a real horrible criticism of them because of the way women and men relate in much of our society. And so I have found that my being direct to a woman is sometimes very intimidating, even though I think I'm the least intimidating person I know. So I, I try to be very, very sensitive and careful in that respect, okay? But if you have suffered terribly and you've recovered, you have the right to say, stop your whining, get off the pity pot in a way that I don't. And I hope you do. If, if, I hope you haven't suffered, but if you have, I hope you do. Okay, thanks. Thank you very much for that answer. Next, we have Judith followed by Carolee. Judith. Okay, uh, thank you very much, Lori, for this weekend. I appreciate your directness. I absolutely love it. Um, very quickly, back to the last thing you were talking about. I didn't get that all. Uh, the things that you should uh, really focus on are impressed that this is a life or death situation and we should be abstinent uh, before we start the steps and then work the steps very quickly. I didn't get the rest. Oh, and, you... and help others as if your life depends upon it. Very good. That's Thank what, you so the, much. That's what, yeah, that's what all of us who, who are you know, have been absent for a long time. I would say that's what all of us have in common, no matter how we work the steps, those are the things we have in common. Thank you. Thank you, Carolee, your turn. Hi, um, Lori, thank you so much. <clears throat> I'd like a comment on the difficulty in OA of the complexity of like foods and food behavior compared to AA. For example, AA will get 500,000 people at a convention every five years. We're lucky if we get 1,000, and there are probably millions more compulsive overeaters. There's so much shame in our program about whether people are abstinent, and I've certainly had this problem. And I hear if you work your program like you do, I understand you can get it. But I think one of the problems why people, so many people drop out is because of this shame. It's very painful to go to meetings and see that some people are recovered, a lot of people, probably most people are not. Um, can you comment on that? Every meeting that I go to that, that creates a problem like the one you're talking about is one that I would put on a step 10 because I think the answer depends on you, on the meeting and, and, and the people there. But in, in, in general, I don't think we talk about the hope as much as we should and the humility and we, we may concentrate on abstinence, 
And I don't think that's as significant as the humility of the spirituality that creates our ability to be absent. Like I don't work at absence. And, and that's a miracle that has nothing to do with me other than the fact that I work hard and try to keep it. Um, but we, we don't emphasize the promises that I talked about, uh, which is that if you work the steps while abstinent, you will have this sense of serenity and spirituality. So, I mean, the World Service Business Conference in its inf infinite wisdom just got rid of the definition of, of recovery that was passed only two years ago. And I'm sorry it did that. I've got to say, I disagree absolutely with the uh, World Service Business Conference in that respect. That definition at least gave the hope of not wanting to go back to that which we've abstained from, which I think is why people come. The other problem is that people have too set an idea of what abstinence is. It's much too prevalent, the sugar and flour stuff, or the gray sheet, or the this, or the way and measure, or you know, there's much too much too much of people who say, "I know what everyone else's problem is," and much less emphasis on figuring out the individual's issue of abstinence. So people often aren't abstinent because their bodies are still craving, because they haven't eliminated that which they have to eliminate. You know. So this shame is, is not their fault. Uh, they shouldn't be ashamed because they just aren't aware that they're still eating things that they shouldn't be eating or indulging in things they shouldn't be indulging in. You know, gray sheet allowed bacon. I believe that the original makers of gray sheet meant Canadian bacon or pimeo bacon, the, the, sort of the, 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 the lean bacon that's, you know, but it's been interpreted as being the strip bacon that's so prevalent, that's all fat with a little bit of meat. And people say, it's fine for me to have this. Or the emphasis on flour, can't have any bread unless it's sprouted and all that. It doesn't do the analysis of, is it what you put on the bread or is it the bread itself that causes you cravings? Does the flour cause you craving or does the fat mix with the flour cause you craving? You know, we don't do this analysis enough. So people are continuing to eat things or indulge in eating behaviors that they, that for them, although not for me, are problems. The other is that, yeah, I agree. There's, there is a lot of shame and guilt in this fellowship because a lot of people feel a lot of shame and guilt. And I certainly felt it. And, and, and I, can, I can imagine that many uh, women in this fellowship, especially those who have been fat shamed or body shamed and women are so much more subject to that than men are in, this, in our societies, um, that they feel ashamed. But I don't think, I don't have any great answer other than the only answer I know is the talking about the despair, the powerlessness and the hope. And I don't think we talk enough about the hope. And I don't think we do a good enough job of talking about the despair. We don't do a good enough job of the message of steps one and two, which is you are powerless yourself, figure out what you're powerless over, give that up. And then the hope is by the time you finish step nine, you won't want this stuff. Because it seems to me that's the essence. Are you at the bottom? Don't feel shame, it's not your fault, that's your body. You can't be ashamed that your body is like that. You're genetically different or you're in some way different. It's not guilt, accept your disability, the hope is that a spiritual awakening will relieve you of your mental problem that keeps sending you back. I don't know if that helps, Carolee. Does it? Oh, good.
because I, I don't have an easy answer for that question. Thank you very much. Um, did anyone else want to ask a question? It's, Going it's, once. It's... Going twice. I'd like to. Oh, go ahead. Um, I have a very new uh, sponsee who's going to be going on a 10 day trip and staying with a variety of relatives. And um, I'm trying to convince her that her disease doesn't go on vacation and that she needs to continue working her program. Um, how do you work with uh, advising sponsees, especially very new ones who are still confused about how to work the program and how to keep, uh, I've been having her listen to Harlan's podcasts and report back to me on them um, because she's uh, really read the big book many times. Um, how do you work with someone like that who she also has brain problems how, how do you work with someone like that who's going on well, a vacation and staying with a serious relatives? First of all, my answer is step 10. Put that person on a step 10 and do, do your own analysis because each one of us is different. Each one of our relationships with our sponsees is different. And what I may say may not be what you would say because we have different personalities and different uh, methods of communication. But my own approach would not be to convince a person of anything. It would be to say to them, the experience of every addict is that the addiction doesn't go on vacation. And that if you relapse, you will simply find yourself in the same despair that brought you here. Um, it's up to you as to whether you relapse. I'm not in charge of your relapses. As I'm not in charge of anything. You can do whatever you want. My experiences and the experience of millions of other addicts uh, including thousands and thousands of OA, is that if you do this, you're, you're, you're going to be in trouble again. You know, if I were you, this is what I would do. And that's the best I would do. If they do it, they do it. And then they may be even more ready to accept their hopelessness if they do relapse. You know, treat it as an opportunity. And, but the one thing I did want to say is, I don't believe that if people relapse, you have to do the same thing with them that they already did. They have learned a lesson. And it may be, and what I say to people relapse, you know, figure out your mistakes, let's figure out how not to make them again, and then get back onto your step four. But include the fact that you relapsed as one of your resentments. You know, because I, 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 there's so much in this fellowship of, well, this is the way I do it. And if you want to, you now that you've relapsed, you're back on step one. So let's reread the doctor's opinion. Let's listen to this recording. Let's do this. They may be so ready to get well that you should just push them through. Just a thought. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, we don't have any more questions. So um, thank you. Take us home. Okay. I'm going to... Uh, share share my screen uh and this is no it's not it's not that it's this one 
It's the end of the big book, page 164. Uh, before I end, I just want to tell a story. Um, uh, this great AA speaker uh, comes to a, a large meeting, speaks for an hour and a half, gets a standing ovation. People line up to talk to him. Uh, that was the greatest speech I've ever heard in my life. I was overwhelmed. Don't thank me, thank God. Someone else comes up. Oh, my God, your interpretation of step six and seven is mind-blowing. I, I mean, it just changed my whole program. Thank you. Don't thank me, thank God. And an old-timer comes up and says, that was a really good speech. Thank you. Don't thank me. Thank God. And the long timer looks at him and says, you weren't that good. And I, I, it's very important for me. I, I don't know if I told you that I count my first relapse from the time that I was asked to speak at a meeting in, uh, a year into my recovery, my, in my first year in the, in the fellowship. I was asked to speak at a meeting and told I could speak as long as I wanted. So I spoke for about 45 minutes, applause, everyone loved what I said. But I knew in my heart that at that point, I was entertaining. I was repeating things that I had said. I wasn't speaking from my heart. I was performing. And that performance started my relapse because I was getting an ego and I was getting uh, to be a star. Listen, I've been trained to teach. I've been trained to speak. I, I, that's just the training I've had. I've been so lucky in my life to have this training. I don't star. I am one bite away from going right back to where I used to be. Well, worse than what I used to be. I have no doubt about that. So from my perspective, you have given me a chance by letting me speak with you. And I thank you for that. Um, I also tell you that you know, people say how wonderful I am uh, at times. And I've gone to do a big book workshop uh, 10 years after I did one in a certain town and someone will come up to me and say, you don't remember me, but we spoke 10 years ago. Uh, you, you know, uh, it was wonderful, thank you. I say, well, that's great, how are you doing? And they'll say, I've been absent for 30 days. And I think to myself, boy, what a wonderful speaker I was 10 years ago. You know, I was just, I changed their lives. So I, I, listen, it's all up to you. It has nothing to do with me. I may have helped you a bit to understand the big book. I'm very grateful. I take no credit for anything I've said because I do think I've plagiarized everything I've said and just put it together in a nice neat package. So I just want to thank you for the opportunity. And now I want to read uh, the uh, last uh, uh, two paragraphs, three paragraphs. I do want to point out that the word trudge in the second last line on page 164 does not mean walk with a firm step. It means walk with a weary step. The whole concept of what we're doing here is that we exhaust ourselves. I, I think I already quoted Clancy who calls alcoholics pukes. We work hard with the pukes outside of ourselves in order not to spend any time with the puke inside ourselves. It's all outer directed, not inner directed. We don't make amends to ourselves but we make the ultimate amends to ourselves by changing. We say no to other people, not because we deserve to say no to other people, because they deserve to grow up. Okay, we don't enable people. That's how we take care of ourselves. That's how we make amends to ourselves. So it's all outer directed, not inner directed. Okay, given that, I'm gonna end. 
Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who's still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order, but obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. And I hope all the 12 provocations that I started with have all been spoken about. Um, and, and if you want to know what the provocations are, you can download the book that's on the website. They've all been answered. Um, I've discussed them all. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass. This is a great factor. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the spirit and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. Thank you very, very much. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so much, Lori. Thank you everyone for attending this weekend.